This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the show. Dr. Matt Townsend here, your coach, your guide on the side. Happy days are here again. Happy Monday to you. And uh, believe it or not, interesting news out of the White House. No. Apparently, his phones were wiretapped, according to President Trump. Yeah. Uh, President Obama. He learned it over the weekend. His team were wiretapping, allegedly. He was hanging out at Mar-a-Lago. He's looking on his phone and he goes, wait a second. This story says. Yeah. And there's really no way he could possibly confirm any of this. Well, he's the president. He could he can... possibly pick up a phone and say, hey, guy I just appointed, what do you think? Yeah. No. I, thought it, I thought he made the announcement and accompanied, with, accompanied it with uh, evidence. No. Is that what happened? No. But no. he did – I think he did have a, you know sources say his – Other than the, the – the Unidentified sources. his office. Yeah. Isn't yeah, that the same thing as saying the stars predict? Oh, yeah. According to my astrological sign, kind of like that, it's really a uh, – it's it's now creating a, a, an uproar because, you know, now you've involved President Obama. Yes. Well, it is this sort of thing that when in doubt, blame Obama. Yeah, toss it out. It all kind of rolls backwards. And it's only been, what, 45, 45 days. days? So, yeah, you can still go back there. He's, he's, he's 45 days into the presidency and – um, but, you know, the Russia heat was starting to get pretty hot. Then he threw this out there. And many are seeing that there tends to be a trend mm-hmm. where every Saturday when everybody kind of leaves him alone, yeah. stuff goes crazy. Yeah, he needs to. This he, happened, I think, Friday night. He needs to have a, a friend that uh, that hangs out with him and keeps his mind on topic. He needs a play date. Yeah. Somebody needs to, you know, somebody needs to set up play dates for Mr. Trump on, you know, those days because Jared and Ivanka, they celebrate their Sabbath. Yeah. So, so on Friday, it creates problems because, you If know. he travels to Florida, they, they, they try not to travel on the Sabbath. Yeah. And so they don't have someone there to keep him. Everyone needs a friend. You know it. But hey, you're the same way, Matt. If you don't have someone with you on a Saturday, all oh. kinds of wild things happen. Actually, you wouldn't, you wouldn't hear from me. Well, that's yeah. I'm a little bit different that way. I would just shut down and binge, binge watch, watch Netflix. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've had a cold. I think Jeffrey had a delayed cold that he somehow gave me. Because um, you usually, I was, I was fine. I've been fine. Well, I think by the end of this week, you won't be so fine. So delayed cold meaning I got it after you got it. Uh, you gave me a cold that you haven't had for days or months. I gave you a cold that I haven't uh, I haven't gotten myself yet. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm battling that, but uh, you know, it's fine. Whatever. It's just a cold. Whatever. You've all had one. Plus, we had some major snow. Again, this is this global warming thing is driving me crazy. What about it? It just. Because Saturday it was what sixty five degrees, seventy degrees. Well, it is. It is more <laughs> accurately termed climate change. Okay, this climate change thing is driving me crazy. Yeah. Saturday it's seventy. Sunday it starts to snow. Monday morning it's Alternative icy. Alternative facts. And it's kind of the three or four inches of snow. 
the, the idea that, that it's explained as is you have varying temperatures, crazy weather, that those kind of things. There's no yeah. distinct pattern when it comes to ice caps are melting. There you go. Seventy. Were you in Southern California over the weekend? No. Hmm. I was in uh, Northern Utah. Seventy degrees. Sixty-seven degrees. Hmm. Where were you? Uh, in reality. Okay. You must not have been looking at the weather reports. <sighs> Today, Joe Cannon will be joining us. We'll be talking politics. See if Joe can help us understand. Is this just a new distraction? Is is Donald Trump just throwing sand and dirt up in the air to like you know obfuscate the the issues of Russia, or is there really something going on here? Or is it because there's a new uh, travel? Uh, executive order coming out is there they're trying to figure out obamacare this today's week. the big release of the they're new trying to work order. on the tax plan and all these sort of things if you keep he's getting a lot of them. stuff done did you just say the new order there's a new order being released by donald trump today new presidential order it's a repeal and replace of the old executive order he he is going to uh, um, live up to his promise of repealing and replacing it's just not going to be obamacare it's going to be yeah. an immigration order right but that's that's today and, uh, well, if they get to it. Well, they say this morning, first and th- – but it's going to take 16 or so – or 15 well, – what it is today. It's, it doesn't start till March 16th. It's not right. implemented. Oh, OK. They're giving everyone some head time. Some, nice. Some leeway. So we'll get to all that fun plus, of course, uh, just some of the empty news that is so important to all of us. Empty meaning Matt Townsend news. But first let's get to Terry's uh, news, the real news with the headlines of the day. Terry, what's up? President Donald Trump has demanded an investigation into whether the Obama administration abused its executive branch investigative powers last year. In a statement on Sunday morning, the White House doubled down on President Trump's unsubstantiated claim that former President Barack Obama ordered wiretapping on the Trump team. Neither Trump nor the White House has provided evidence to back up the assertion. President Press Secretary Sean Spicer said the president finds these reports are troubling and the White House or, or the president will not comment further until such oversight is conducted. They then commented on all the Sunday shows and maybe muddied the water even more. In a public statement Saturday, former President Obama's spokesperson said the previous administration never ordered surveillance on any U.S. citizen. Which is okay, see, so that's clarified. Yeah, sort of. Uh, former Director of National Intelligence James Clapper denied President Trump's allegation that former President Obama wiretapped Trump Tower. If something like that happened, would this be something you would be aware of, asked NBC News' Chuck Todd. I can't speak officially anymore, but uh, I will say that for the part of the national security apparatus that I oversaw as DNI, there was no such wiretap activity mounted against the president-elect at the time or as a candidate or against his campaign. The FBI, for instance, had a FISA court order of some sort for a surveillance. Would that be information you would know or not know? Yes. You would be told this? I would know that. Something like this, absolutely. And at this point, you can't confirm or deny whether that exists? I can deny it. There is no FISA court order? Not, Not to my knowledge. Of anything at Trump Tower? No. And then Chuck Todd ended with, oh, that's new. Well... That seems like intelligence. I mean, he's not supposed to deny it, or he's not supposed to be talking about that anymore, right? I, I guess. I don't. But know. He, he's denying it. I mean, I get. It. I get it. It's it's a great quote, but I thought you're not supposed to talk about things that are like a FISA court for crying out loud. Isn't that like yeah, uber sacred? Uh, like I don't sacrosanct? know. I don't know anymore. Okay. 
Fun stuff. Yeah. Also, most Americans, 65% want a special prosecutor to investigate the alleged contact between President Trump's campaign and associates of the Russian uh, and, and Russian officials, according to a new CNN poll. About 32% of Americans think Congress is capable of handling the investigation. 55% say Americans say they are concerned by recent reports of contact. The president's approval rating hasn't moved much in the wake of those reports. His rating improved by one percentage point to 45%. Was that uh, boy? Okay, he was at forty-four. So yeah, things are looking up in Trump Trumpsville. Hmm. Is that a place? Yeah. Um, finally, this is a non-Trumpian type situation. A UK restaurant has created a monster. What? A, the George Pub and Grill is selling a steak dinner that weighs in at more than a newborn child. <laughs> oh my heavens! The UK's biggest steak, measuring two feet long and weighing a staggering thirteen pounds. With a width of two inches, the meaty behemoth is thicker than many mouths are wide. I can challenge that assertion, though. Uh, Fortunately, you don't have to eat it all by yourself. Oh, it's kind of a – it's a community steak. Yep. Restaurant owner Craig Harker has said the challenge is for four diners to eat the mammoth steak in 45 minutes. Hold on. Four diners eating 13 pounds. Oh, my goodness. So it's called the Holy Cow. It's a 220-ounce steak. They called it a sharing, a sharer, yeah, whatever. Uh, it costs one hundred fifty-three dollars, and requires twenty-four hours' notice so he can get the meat from the butcher. The owner said the, the the piece of beef, which is so big it has to be served on a metal tray, takes two and a half hours to cook to medium rare before it's served with chips, onion rings, and coleslaw to quote help it go down. But the problem is when you're doing these these types of eating contests, you don't eat any other food. Do you yeah. have to eat the other side items in it order to? It doesn't um, say. Usually, sometimes they do that. They want the entire meal. That's part of the contest. But yeah. the problem is that the rest of the food gets in the way of the actual contest, which is the steak. So they're tempting you with side items. Success- and- successful diners compete the, complete the challenge will win a, certif- a certificate, a Facebook legend alert. I'm not sure what that is. Uh. And a champion's hoodie. Well, plus gastric bypass surgery. On the other (laughs) hand, no one goes home empty. He says that the losers will win a free ride to the hospital once cardiac arrest sets in. We find that a lot of people are in a food coma when they complete the challenge. (laughs) What a weird – and by the way, uh, great journalism because they then – they compared the whole thing to eating a baby. No, it's the the, it weighs more than a newborn child. No, it weighs more like double of the newborn child. I mean the average birth – the average weight of a newborn baby is what? My kid weighed nine pounds. Oh, okay. Let's look this up. Well, Matt, you do love you some baby. <laughs> I, I haven't had, mm. I haven't eaten a baby for years. Average weight, um, because you know, thirteen pounds is a big baby, right? Well, we've had a story of babies that big. Of course, the reason they're a story is because they're that big. I was the, ten. The average Are weight you? of a newborn baby is about seven and a half pounds. Wow, lightweight. So it's like eating two babies. Yeah. If we're gonna get. You know, exact. Okay. Or one South baby. Yeah, just one. And then a pre, and then a preemie. Well, the six the uh, the six pound steak. That's the healthy option. You can get the yeah. healthy option. I mean, we're talking. You're used to like having what, like a twelve ounce. The a big steak would be a twelve ounce steak. This is this is thirteen pounds. That's two hundred twenty ounces. That is so much beef. I just my cholesterol is going up. It's horrible. Yeah, and seeing it on a plate, it was the the pictures of it are. It's impressive. Oh yeah. Not that you want to eat this. You could eat that for a week. It's a side of beef. Yeah, that's why he has to special order it because they look at him and they go, "Is this for your entire week's supply of steak?" He goes, "No, it's just for one meal." 
Well, the 24 hours is also for the customer to give them time to fill out their will. Oh. Yeah, yeah. You got to do your legal work, get what, your trust together. What kind of preparation do you need to do to be able to complete that task? Well, I would just say a lot of sitting around. <laughs> You gotta. You probably have to have a lot of other heavy foods in your gut to like stretch your gut out. Mm. You know, I would probably take a one or two pound weight and just do curls up to your mouth because yeah, yeah. each bite is going to be about heavy. that heavy. Yeah, now you need to be eating about half a pound every five minutes. But it's between four people. Well, is it? Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, the idea is you have this massive amount of. I mean, beef you have to have then... four really big, heavy eaters. Like, you can't have you and your wife and your friend Jerry and right. his wife. Yeah. I mean, yeah, because my wife- You're looked, right. She couldn't put away a pound of meat. The key to success is picking the right team. Yeah, you got to have a good team. You got to moneyball this. Mm-hmm. Figure out who has the right consumption skills. Yeah. Who has no self-control. Okay. Who really has a will to die. Even though you got to know your friend that has that ability that when they're full- they can just keep going. Yeah, well, yeah, you got to have there that one. There is no stopping. Mm-hmm. Who has that disconnect between their stomach and their brain? Right. You just got to pack it away. Because I mean, people they get full, and it's really, really only half their stomach. Yeah, right. I think the big rule is you got to easily have three or four pounds in you huh. if within the first ten minutes. Because once you got four or five pounds in you, three or four or five pounds in you, then you're like, well, I may as well just keep going. You know, then, what's the worst thing that could happen with be, eight or nine pounds? There of, has to be a contingency of Joe Bob across the table doesn't pull in his weight. Can you imagine what your body is yeah. actually feeling and thinking as it's doing this? Like, holy cow, this guy's bringing out a lot of protein, a lot of protein. <laughs> what did I ever do to you? <laughs> and then uh, the sad thing is you're going to totally overlook the onion rings. Right. Which, what a sad waste. Mm-hmm. I feel bad. Have you ever done something like that where you no. try to eat a mass amount of food? No. I've I done mean, a one-pound burger before. How'd that go? It was a miserable experience. But then as I was Did you get the wincing in pain, I looked over at the ice cream counter and I thought, I really want one of those. Did you really? So then I ate this gigantic ice cream cone, the entire thing. Really? Yeah. But I got my picture on the wall. Wow. And the ice cream was delicious. I've never. Have you done it? I went to an all-you-can-eat steak Yeah, house. I remember you said that once. About 12 and a half steaks. They're probably about six-ounce steaks, maybe. Jeez. So nothing huge. No. But, I mean, But yeah. still. There were, you, no, there were enough that I basically corded them up and ate them. Did you get your name on the wall? No. Well, sort of. It was kind of a thing where if you wore a tie, they'd yeah. make you cut the tie. Oh, so they cut they, your tie? They're not a, a tie type of yeah, establishment. No, no. And then you put your tie on the wall. With a card, you just write your name and who you're with, oh. and you staple it to the wall. And, so you were, you were an LDS missionary, yeah, so much. you had to. <laughs> so instead of time. so instead of the steak taking two and a half hours to cook, they probably did it in two and a half minutes oh, in yeah. a George Foreman grill. I was like, mm, keep them yeah. coming, keep them coming. That sounds good, though. Yeah. Well, yeah, I got to get on it. But like emotionally, that was a hard night, and physically, that was painful. Because at some point, you just top out. What do what do like vegans do? Like, do they like do a a broccoli? Bash, yeah, like seven pounds of broccoli. <laughs> yeah, where are all the vegan all-you-can-eat establishments? Yeah, there's got to be like a major tofu title. <laughs> How many it's tofu did you eat? Eighteen pounds of tofu in one oh, hour. Just a brick of gray nothing. Yeah. <laughs> well, cool. Okay, man. In a minute, we're going to bring on Joe Cannon. We'll see if he's had any food uh, 
victories. Um, Joe Cannon is going to talk to us about what's going on in Washington. He's Joe in the know, we call him. He's our Washington insider. See if he can make any sense of what's going on back there. Uh, Are these just signs of bigger things to come? Stick with us. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we do what we can on the show to make sense of whatever's going on in the world or in our lives. And who better to help us with the political world than Joe Cannon? Joe Cannon is, uh, we call him Joe in the know. He was a past chairman of the Utah Republican Party. He was also a candidate for U.S. Senate and served as an assistant administrator in the U.S. EPA in the Environmental Protection Agency under the Reagan administration. Also was the editor of the Deseret News uh, newspaper. So he's he's touched them all, and uh, now he is the CEO of Fuel Freedom Foundation, an organization um, that is trying to lower the fuel costs here in the United States. Joe Cannon, thanks for being on the show, my friend. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Good to have you. And what do you think? Uh, and any uh, any insight into the latest and greatest from President Trump about wiretapping? No, I neither I and I think almost nobody else has any insight into that. Uh, well, that's a, that's there are plenty of thoughts on that, but uh, you know, I just but I, I kind of want to go if it's even possible to do this at this point, sort of pre Friday Saturday tweets. Yeah, and this is this is back to Lucy and Charlie Brown <laughs> yep, and the, the football. football. We've all been waiting. I mean, I watched the speech on Tuesday night, and uh, and we're all it was it Tuesday or Wednesday, whenever it was last week, and um, like many people waiting, which, which Trump is going to show up? And sure enough, actually, a, a pretty good Trump showed up. Mm-hmm. Great, great press reviews, even from people who don't like him at all, and and so for many people, well, for for his base. You know that just that kind of ratified that for lots of people who kind of want to like him or want permission. You know that speech went a long way, and I think for his adversaries, the speech made a lot of them pretty nervous. Yeah, I mean, there's, we would be talking about the interesting fact of putting a 70 year old former governor of Tennessee who claims to be a uh, uh, or was in Kentucky wherever uh, a, a Republican. To be the counter. I mean, we would be spending a lot of time talking about that. Instead, we see Lucy put tee the football up. We're thinking this time it's real. This time the guy who gave a speech is President <laughs> Trump now. And we think, okay, we're going to be able to kick the football. We're Charlie Brown. And we get up there. And then what happens? She pulls the ball. Pulls the football away yeah. again. Oh, man. It doesn't end, does it? I mean, it's it really. He had such a great day on that speech, and then you know immediately Russia comes back in with two more announcements: Sessions and Kushner um, admitting to having talked to the Russians, and then it almost seems like this becomes a smokescreen. Well, that's one. That's one of the possible explanations. That that's true. I, I guess before we kind of delve into that, I would just say. I I believe kind of in my bones, although as we big caveat, we've always been wrong on 
lots of things <laughs> surrounding President Trump and candidate Trump. But I think this is a more of a tectonic shift this time than any of his other things. I mean, he's done for for over a year. He's done things that people are going, could he have really done that? That's the end. Mm. And I don't, I'm not saying this is the end because he is president. I'm not sure anything impeachable happened here. But there's something way different about accusing by name and in a very derogatory way the former president. Now, the former administration has plenty of, uh, you have plenty of reasons to think that they could have, would have, might have used the powers of government for political ends. Yeah. There, there's lots of evidence for that. But to just accuse, and then, and then what, well, there are three explanations, three possible explanations. One is, he's right. Right. The, the, the Obama administration and or people in the Obama administration, I might say, the denials of this were very curiously worded. I, I don't say that they could have been worded any differently, but there was a lot of, to the best of my knowledge, or we have never, the White House has never done that. That doesn't mean, of course, other people haven't done it. But with all those caveats, one of the possibilities is that, it's, that he's right. Second possibility is that, well, he's right that there were illegal wiretappings and that this was a, a political game. The second thing that could also be right is the FBI and the intelligence agencies actually legally did spy by going through the FISA court and mm-hmm. getting the proper permits uh, permission and that there might actually really be something in the in Trump world that was worth uh, uh, somebody looking at. And the third possibility is that all of this was was like you just said, uh, a smokescreen, uh, something to rally his supporters, to divert attention from the Russia controversy. Um, those are three. There may be other possibilities, but those are three that strike me and others have been, you know, looking at this. Uh, the telling thing is, if it's number one, which is what Trump believes that it is, or says he believes that it is, there's not a scintilla of evidence supporting that. And I'm now quoting from somebody on the right. Now, to be fair, the Weekly Standard isn't exactly pro-Trump, but a guy named Steve Hayes, the new editor, is a very smart guy, a specialist. In, in foreign in intelligence matters, uh, just basically said, you know, if there's something there so far, I can't find it. Hmm. Well, and um, now he has the FBI asking the Department of Justice. I mean, th- this is it's one thing to like, you know, cast aspersions and throw out stuff, but now you have inv- the FBI investigating it. I mean, this is well not what you want. <laughs> Right? No, 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 no. Especially, I mean, especially what, what about your own issue about wiretappings around Russia. Well, what you're, what he's done is opened up this Pandora's box, and who knows what's going to come out of it. But, but just going back to to the basis of the truth, even within the White House. So sometimes people think that President Trump does things in a very calculated way and that even though they might seem kind of crazy or outrageous, they have some purpose. This seems to be, and this is again from Republicans quoting sources, their friends in the White House. This seems to be just 
a a fit of pique and anger and frustration that while the speech went really, really well, the aftermath of the speech, things got all clouded up. A lot of bad things happened. You 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 had the whole Sessions uh, Russia thing, then uh, you know lots of energy around that. Then you had uh, you know, Obamacare, maybe not going the way people think it should go, and then and then apparently Trump was very upset that Sessions recused himself, and so that this all uh, the the tweets were all a consequence of this pent up anger and frustration, and there's some pretty good reporting again from Republicans and people who you know are using their their Republican sources to say that this was not a calculated uh, deal. I mean, normally, if, if it were calculated, there are a lot of smart people in the White House. They, they right. would have said, uh, okay, what's the evidence for this? And maybe this is the right way to do it, is to have the president send out a tweet, and then, then we'll come forward with the evidence. So, so far, no evidence is coming forward, other than there were FISA uh, applications. Uh, but... You know, who is that? Is that <laughs> President Obama? And if you look at the tweets themselves, it's like, you know, they're so directly aimed at uh, at the president, uh, at President Obama. I don't know. It's just. Uh, well, and it's almost it also seems like if if you are frustrated about the Russia leaks and um then you immediately turn to the fact that it's wiretapping. It seems like it's almost an admission that, okay, yeah, there were issues, but you shouldn't have known about any of this unless you were illegally tapping, wiretapping us. So, I mean, it's almost, it just seems, I don't know. It, I I get it, and I think, I really do. I think he's brilliant in many ways of how he knows how to play the media and keep the news cycle alive, but this seems just like, yeah, it's going to open up a bunch of problems. I think... Yeah, I think this is categorically different. Now, undergirding all of this, you know, uh, okay, just lay aside the uh, Trump's accusations that that this is Watergate, Nixon, quote, that Obama is, quote, a bad or a sick guy, close quote. Uh. Um, okay, just laying all that aside, in fact, the lots of intelligence information has leaked. And that's illegal. Yeah. So, so actually, undergirding this, there's a genuine issue of who who knows what and who's leaking, and you know why are they leaking? You know, I mean, there is right. an important question here. Yeah. But but this is like dropping an atom bomb on an important issue. It's 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 uh, just just inflammatory. It's inflammatory in a way that. This may be a bridge too far. Hmm. Now, people have said that for over a year about President Trump. Okay, this is this is a bridge too far. Okay, he's finally gone too far. And it's, it's day like, forty-five, yeah, Joe. Seems, it's the forty-fifth yeah. day of his presidency. Yeah, this is just anyway. fast. Is I mean, because it's true that, and I guess that's part of the problem is. Uh, it's the little bit of truth. I mean, the the leaky the leaks are important, and the excessive leaking, and um, you know, the media kind of you know circling like sharks. He feels like, but how do you how do you stop intelligence from an intelligence professionals 
who are professionally leakers and are professionally data gatherers, how do you stop the leaks? I, don't, I mean, there's always been leaking, right? And how do you stop it? Right. And I don't know that you can stop it. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting that you could stop it. I'm just saying that, that there is an issue there and that Trump's response to it is is just inflaming something way beyond, way out of proportion. And I just wonder why. I mean, he's having such a good week. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, that, you know, who knows? I, who knows what goes on in, in the mind of President Trump? I mean, the fact is, he's actually done a lot of things. I think the the best narrative, is, the best way to direct the narrative, and this goes to your leak question, is, just talk about what we've done, uh, what we're doing, what we're going to do. Uh, there, there are a lot of positives that he could he could talk about. Yeah, and just just move forward and, and don't get involved in. Well, somebody said Obama did more than I've done, or somebody else did more than I've done. So what? Why? Yeah. Don't just ignore that. Just say here's what here's what we've done, and it's it's amazing. And look at the stock market, and just direct people's attention to positive things mm. instead of, um, in, in a way, going nuclear here yeah. uh, on, on something that uh, even people in the White House apparently were just scrambling. And again, talking, looking at conservative journalists, uh, the Weekly Standard and others who have pretty good ties inside there. Yeah. It's, it's a, no, this was not a calcula- calculation. And well, that's, yeah, that's a problem when you're the president. If you're a candidate, you can do whatever you want. But president, what he did is, apart from everything else, he undermined the incredible political capital mm. that he built yeah. in the speech. He undermined it by reminding people of, you know, the less attractive parts of, of his presidency. Yeah, the discipline. It's yeah, it's like he's got to learn. The disciplines of the office, it seems like, still. And and we'll talk in a minute, Joe, if that's even possible. I mean, do you do you teach an old dog new tricks? Do you teach an old, uh, you know, a, a method that works for him, you know, maybe living in the now and stirring the pot now, but hurting him long term? Can you teach that to a person? We'll find out. Stick with us. More with our Washington insider, Joe Cannon from FuelFreedom.org. Go check out that website. We'll be back. Stick with us. The time for trivial fights is behind us. Yes, it is. It seriously is, President Trump. And uh, joining us on the phone is Joe Cannon. Joe in the know, we call him. He's our Washington insider, CEO of Fuel Freedom Foundation, uh, which you can find out more information about at fuelfreedom.org. Also past candidate, past uh, news editor for a newspaper, past party, Republican Party chairman for a state and uh, we just like to pick his brain. Joe, welcome back, my friend. Thanks, Matt. Hey, um, so do you remember at CPAC, uh, Bannon, uh, Steve Bannon, is it Steve Bannon? Yeah. He, Steve Bannon, yeah. Steve Bannon made a comment that, you know, his, his ultimate goal is to bring down the administrative state. This, uh, this, 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 I guess this bureaucracy that just makes laws that, 
that runs and and creates um, you know all of these problems for mainstream America. And it, it maybe is that it seems like that's what's happening here, right? They're, they've so far they've taken on the intelligence agencies, the FBI, along with that, Congress, the ex-administration, the Obama administration, the regulators. Is this so maybe this isn't as crazy if what they're really doing is just trying to bring down the administrative state? Well, I do think that uh, the administrative state is something to be uh, feared and concerned about. I mean, uh, explain what that is to the to the rest of us. Okay, so. So basically, just to kind of con- Constitution 101, there are three branches of government, judicial, legislative, and executive. Um, what happened really starting with Woodrow Wilson, but, but in, in, in a great way, it was a great boost by, by President uh, Roosevelt, was the creation of, of a lot of these so-called alphabet agencies, the FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, the Federal Trade Commission, uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission. And so Congress passed laws and then ultimately delegated to the executive branch the, you know, the execution of these laws. But the way the executive branch responded was to set up these, uh, these administrative agencies that write regulations implementing the laws. And almost everybody, this is this is actually very bipartisan. One of the great regulatory reformers turned out to be uh, Jimmy Carter. Jimmy hmm. Carter abolished the uh, Civil Aeronautics Board. He ab- abolished a you know a number of federal agencies that had uh, you know kind of outlived their usefulness, but it had but it had lots of economic consequences for the regulations. Hmm. So there are people on both sides of the aisle here that look at the consequence of all these regulations and say this is something costing the economy you know over time trillions of dollars certainly hundreds of billions of dollars so that's the the bad news the good news is of course uh, a lot of these regulations are important Uh, so people kind of like breathing clean air people kind of like clean water and so and those are a consequence of legislation uh, that spawned regulation which required states, say, for example, in the case of clean air, to develop state implementation plans to show how they were going to move the air in a healthier direction. And indeed, you can say they've worked. The air across the United States is vastly, greatly cleaner than it was in the 70s when the Clean Air Act was passed. So, yeah. so you've got this tension. You've, there, there's some good things about regulation, but there's some deeply troubling things about regulation, not just the cost. But how are these regulations made? Who makes the regulations and how accountable are they to whom? And the answer is, the Constitution says Congress is supposed to make the laws that govern our country. They're elected representatives. And what you have is this vast regulatory bureaucracy. When you walk, you know, at the time that J. Reuben Clark, a person very familiar to many and most of your listeners, was uh, worked in the State Department, almost all the government fit into a couple of buildings hmm. in Washington, D.C. And wow. now you, you walk, you drive in. I remember driving my daughter into Washington, and we were looking at all these buildings, and she said, Dad, what do all these people do? And she, she wasn't particularly political. She just said, what do all these people <laughs> do in all these buildings? 
perfectly innocent question. And you got to wonder, why does the Department of Agriculture have like multiple buildings and thousands and thousands of employees? What are they doing all the time? And who are they accountable to? So when people talk about the regulatory state, that's the, that's the question. And there's been a lot of literature about this. And one of my favorite books on this is by a, a professor at Columbia University called Is Administrative Law Unlawful? Huh. And what he traces it back, and I'm sorry, I'm, this is probably a subject for a much longer conversation, but he traces the whole administrative state idea back to Magna Carta, okay, 1215. Wow, yeah. And the, and the tension in England and then later in the United States, the tension between the will of the sovereign or the executive branch and the will of the people. And what his his the main point of his book is this has gotten way out of whack, and it is the sovereign or the executive branch usurping powers that co- the Constitution grants to the people through their elected representatives. So how do you get a handle on this? And my own view on this, and this is, this is unique, but is that Congress and the executive branch and the courts to a great extent have basically uh, given up on their, you know, they, they've abdicated their responsibility in this area. And so what you see is a lot of people trying to say, how do we get back? How do we, how do we get this vast economic and behavioral regulation back to where it belongs and where, where the elected representatives of the people mm. are deciding what what to happen? So I mean, that's that's a, pretty exciting if if it could happen. Um, but I guess simultaneously, he he's trying to you know do the repeal and replace was was his goal and objective. But Congress too, I guess we also see they're really struggling struggling getting together on a plan for repeal and replace. Is that ever going to happen? How do you see the whole uh, Obamacare and the promises of repeal and replace coming down? Okay, that's a good question. I I did just want to say that the repeal of Obamacare in and of itself isn't actually part of this whole deconstructing, dismantling the administrative state. Uh, I mean, because that was legislative, right? But that was that was legislative. So the the things that people like or dislike about uh, the Affordable Care Act really relate to the legislation itself. Now, the legislation was a massive piece of regulation that uh, imposed a lot of regulations or spawned a lot of regulation. But, but getting back to your question yeah. on, the, uh, on the Obamacare, um, it's a, like everything in Washington, it's a very interesting dynamic. There is absolute total will on the part of the Republicans in the House and in the Senate to, now I'm going to say, use weasel words, to do something about Obamacare. Yeah. Okay. Now, everybody says, okay, repeal and replace. And I would say there's probably universal uh, agreement on that among Republicans. The problem comes in with the replace. And and that's where you get this intra-party tension. You have a, a whole body of, of very conservative uh, legislators saying, well, wait, we don't want, quote, Obamacare light. We really want something totally different. We want to return things directly and only to the market, to the free market, and to the states, and figure out something that looks a lot like that. Hmm. Other people are saying, well, wait, wait, it's just, a, even even other conservatives are saying, it's just a little more complicated than that. 
we have we have a big regulatory system in place governing health care that's part Medicare, part Medicaid, part Obamacare. They're all, you know, all pieces of this out there. And you can't just whack that and then not replace it or not replace it with something that gives a certain amount of certainty to an area that every individual in the United States cares a lot about. They may not know about the tax code. They may not know many complicated things, but everybody knows a lot about their individual health care coverage. And they don't want that messed up or messed around with to such an extent that it destabilizes the system that lots and lots and lots of people have a lot of confidence in that aren't under Obamacare. Mm. So the real tension, the real fight that's going on right now is within the Republican Party deciding what to do, how far to go, how far they can go legally, how far they can go politically, and and still have enough votes to do something. So hence the, the quote, secrecy, close quote, about how the leadership of the House and the Senate are, are approaching this. And basically, you know, you had the kind of Rand Paul, who's a pretty clever guy and a very, very interesting guy, you know, running around the Capitol looking for the <laughs> secret bill. Where is the Obamacare repeal bill and say, where's Waldo? You know, yeah, it's a very, a very clever tactic on, on his part. And, uh, and echoes and of little... Nancy Pelosi say, you know, when we, we weren't going to see the bill till we read the bill or you were until you've passed the bill, then you can read the bill. I mean, it's those, those yeah, echoes are coming back. Lot, yeah. Well, there's a lot of disingenuousness on the part of Democrats commenting on this right. bill. So it's almost no Democrats ever read the bill. The original bill, as as Speaker Pelosi said, you know, well, we, let's get it out there and then we can read it. Uh. Um, so, so there's <laughs> a lot. I, to, I will say, to be fair to the leadership of the House and the Senate, I think they've got this underhand. I, I think they obviously know the problems. They're very, they're very skilled politically. They know the problems within their caucus, and they're trying to put something together that they can get through that still accomplishes the president's objectives. Yeah. But as said many times on your show, the older I get, the more genius the founders appear. Yeah. Because they, they set this whole system up and they didn't want it to be efficient. You know, we, people say we want an efficient government. No, do, do not pray for an efficient government. Efficient governments can do really bad things. Yeah. Uh, and without and without thinking about it, um, what would you say? I mean, we've got about a minute left, Joe. What's the uh, what's the one thing we're not talking about that uh, that we should be paying attention to? I don't know. I think we actually talked about two of the, the big things that we have to pay attention to: the the whole deconstruction of the administrative state or the realigning of the administrative state. And also, I think that the tweet the tweets of the president are categorically different, and we're going to see a categorically different response. And this is going to be a very interesting week to see yeah. how this, all this comes out. Yeah. Maybe, maybe he'll put the Twitter feed away. Maybe, he'll, maybe this will teach him the lesson that it's just better to, you know, not well, talk. we know that he can be presidential. Yeah, we, we saw it. Uh, and uh, and that's not just in the speech. That was an important thing. But we know that he can do he can do other presidential things. And so it's just why this distraction. 
It's very, hmm. very disconcerting. Well, hopefully more doesn't come out later that uh, makes it all understandable. Joe Cannon, we appreciate you. Keep up your great work uh, at, at uh, Fuel Freedom Foundation. Again, the website there is fuelfreedom.org, a great uh, resource trying to lower the cost of fuel here in the United States. And we appreciate that in Joe. And it's time to, to walk us through these all things that are so political that many of us don't even want to get into. We'll take a break, my friends. Come back, wrap up hour number one of the show. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. With all the chaos going on in D.C., isn't it good to know that uh, all you have to worry about is, you know, your little life, your measly little income, and your taxes? Tax day is fast approaching. Fast approaching, and it will be easier to do your taxes this year than ever before. Right, Terry? According to reports, easier than ever before. Now, why? Uh, And I don't believe that. The number of people audited by the IRS in 2016 dropped for their sixth straight year to just over 1 million people. Wow. Right? The the last time so few people were audited was 2004. Since then, the U.S. has audited about 30 million people. The IRS blames budget cuts as money... For the agent, uh, as uh, cuts money for the agency shrunk from 12 billion in 2010 to 11 billion last year. Over that period, the agency lost more than 17,000 employees. Woo! Yeah, including nearly 7,000 enforcement agents. A little more than 80,000 people work at the IRS, right? So yeah, they're, yeah. They're, they're cutting, they're, they're dropping. The number of people that can actually perform an audit, lower, right? So there's lower targets. So there's yeah, more opportunity. There's fewer to, yeah. chances of you being audited, I guess. So if you're sitting there and you're like, "Oh, I want I want to write this off," but you're like, "I don't want my receipts," you're probably okay. No, that is bad advice. Oh, is that bad advice? Yeah, oh, no. Sorry. That's do, kind of the point do what's of legal, do what's right, but and you know, don't get, don't be stupid. So yeah, so they it says wow. In 2016, the number of people audited by the IRS dropped by 16% from the year before to just 0.7% of individuals were audited, either by in-person or by mail. That's the lowest since 2003. That's The higher your income, the more likely you are to get audited. Yeah. So the IRS audited 1.7% of returns that reported more than $200,000 in income. Agents audited 5.8% of returns that reported more than a million. See, that's why it's easier. It's better to just stay so the vast, impoverished. As it's saying, the vast majority of the country, they don't care about you because you're small. You're small, small peanuts, potatoes. right? That you're small potatoes. They want to get the big fish. Yeah, they want the Matt Townsends of the world. What? That's who they're going to target. Huh? They're going to go right no. at you, Matt. That's not true. I'm serious. They no. will. No, no, not true. No. But also, the big fish don't have to show their tax returns. I don't think fish is paid taxes, especially if they're under audit, right? <laughs> If there's an audit happening, you really don't have to show them to anyone. So, so there is good news. Any way you look at it, there, that's some good news for all of us. Thanks, Terry. Just here to help. Here to help. We'll take a break, folks. We'll be back next hour. More fun, more ideas to help you live longer, love stronger. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. 
Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Happy days are here again. And uh, boy, oh boy, have we got a great show for you today. With advancing technology, artificial intelligence, robots, what is the number one skill needed to make it through that boon? We got a lot coming down the road, and uh, we'll be speaking with a guest I know who it, wrote a book. It's what grit? <laughs> it's grit. <laughs> uh, I don't think it's going to be grit. You have a special uh, affinity for the term the grit. grit. Yeah. I've never tasted my grit. Never tasted grits before. You haven't? No. Where have you been, young man? Well, I've heard it's just like eating sand. So no desire. I'm not a big grits fan. Hmm. I am. Biscuits and gravy is like I will. I would have that as probably my last meal, my last breakfast. Or is it more just the gravy? It's the gravy. You okay. can put the gravy on anything. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Biscuits and gravy. You could have it on blocks of wood and gravy. Mm. Fiber, fiber, sausage gravy, <sighs> or bacon gravy. Wow. Or ham gravy. You're just going to continue this, aren't you? Um, tons. Sounds good there. Hey, by the way, today we are celebrating fun facts about names day. Fun facts about names. Your name may have a fun fact behind it. Like Terry. Yeah. Which is really Terrell. Mm-hmm. Which is really what? Um, let me see. Possibly Old French for polar, referring to a nickname for a stubborn person. Bingo. See, now. Nailed it. I don't agree with that because. What? What? I also found that it's Irish. What? For tender. Oh. Hold it. So is it is it stubborn the, or tender? The French version implying a comparison with an old horse that uncooperatively pulls on the reins. <laughs> I'm going for These, tender. I'm going with the French, the pulling on the reins. I go with the old German, which leads to Norse mythology of yeah. Thor. God of Thunder. Yeah, that doesn't That fit. one really works for me, I think. The thunder fits you, but um, not God of Thunder. Matthew. Not a lot. Matthew. Yeah. What a gift from God. Gift of Yahweh. Yeah. Specifically. Yahweh. But, you know, God is understood. That. Thank you. That one nailed it, too. So if you're, uh, no, if you're a gift of God, then I must be no exchanges or refunds. Yeah. No money back. Guaranteed. Actually, says in American, the meaning of the name Jeffrey is God's peace. Oh, cute. In French, Kiss the meaning Margaret. is divine peace. There's all you go through, and I remember this all through the different languages. It all has yeah. something to do with. So peace. Jeff, Jeff really means he's a piece of he's a piece. He's Ain't a, it the truth? Ain't it the truth? He's quite a piece of something. Yeah, you're about. It's all about peace with you. Congratulations. Hey, speaking of peace, I've still got this bag of Reese's Pieces here on the desk that Will I plan on eating. just finish that? Just eat them. Okay. Just eat them. And then put them on – put it on Terry's taxes. They're done. <laughs> My no, taxes, taxes are finalized. Are My, mine take forever. And mine are quick. Ah. Uh, uh. It takes about two hours of my wife sitting there reading off numbers and me typing them in and – you guys. Then we have those magical moments of you put in the mortgage on your house, the taxes you paid there, and you're like, yeah. Then you put in charitable contributions. You're like, oh, yeah. Yeah, then getting you ahead. Put in, then, I, then last year the I had one kid. Earn child credit. Now tax I have two, two kids. It just doubled oh your tax Just benefit. wait. It's going to be wonderful, Jeff. You so, put in the extra kid. And Jeff man. has a wife that's an accountant. Yeah. So do you, do you, would you rather have the money back from your tax return or would you rather know that you didn't pay too much in taxes? Mm. 
Yeah, because actually the taxes you get back are just the over what you overpaid. I think, so. I'd, I, I think I, there's more satisfaction getting a check from the government. Oh, absolutely. Makes you feel like you've <laughs> – But not a, not a big check. Yeah, not a huge – Because then you really overpaid and you just missed out on money that you could have had and done something. Well, but when you're like me that has to write a check, oh, yeah, yeah. then it's always more fun but to But it's get like finding gold. Not or really. A, it's a finding, bonus. finding gold that you left in a drawer somewhere. It's like you're... finding the extra fry at the bottom of the fast food bag. That little brown burnt piece, one that's all crispy. It's always the best. Lots of flavor in that one. Uh, we got a lot to talk about today. What uh, of all the skills do you need to make it in this new smart age and uh, high tech age? Mindfulness. We talk a lot about mindfulness. That'll yeah. help you with your life and in your own right. mindful pursuits. Oh. Grit helps the kids to not be lazy when times get tough. Okay. This is about how oh. do you keep a job. Oh, okay. There's one idea that'll help you keep a job in the information age. Ooh, it's going to be interesting. Uh, we'll be talking about that in a bit. Also, um, we're going to get to the headlines, of course. Terry has got a ton of information to give us about, I'm sure, about Donald Trump's latest yeah. Uh, yeah. escapade. Stick with us, folks. Actually, let's go right to the headlines, Terry. What's going on so, around the rest of the country? President Trump's allegation that Trump Tower is wiretapped by the federal government during the 2016 election is possible. Digital surveillance experts tell Politico, but his claim that former President Obama personally ordered their surveillance doesn't match legal realities. The president cannot simply ask for a wiretap warrant the way Trump tweets suggest. That's the role of law enforcement agents by way of a judge's order. Hmm. Still, there are other ways Trump Tower conversations could have been monitored by the feds. First, they may have come upon Trump Tower phone calls if a targeted foreign agent was on the other end of the line. This method comes from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. Second, the FBI could have also asked for a so-called pin register or tap and trace device, which only records the parties involved in a phone call. Both options would have been available to the Obama administration. Yeah. But still, we're dealing with possibilities but, with no... I don't know. More unsettling is maybe that President Trump thinks you can just wiretap people. Yes. Because there's a lot scary. of scary. There's comments he made during the election cycle and during the first 45 days here where it seems like he thinks like you just sit there and snap yeah. your fingers and things Wire happen. Wiretap him. And he's frustrated that, what is this? There's a process? What? So, kind of interesting. After President Trump used Twitter to accuse Barack Obama of wiretapping his phones, FBI Director James Comey told the Justice Department to publicly reject his claim. Senior U.S. officials told the New York Times Sunday. Comey made the request on Saturday, saying the allegation is baseless and must be shot down because it insinuates that the FBI broke the law. But the Department of Justice has yet to release any statement refuting Trump's claim. Hmm. So that's kind of where we stand at the yeah. moment. Yeah. Republican U.S. lawmakers expect to unveil this week the text of the long-awaited legislation to repeal and replace the Obamacare health law, one of the one of President Trump's top legislative priorities, a senior Republican congressional aide said on Sunday. The aide cited progress in meetings and phone calls starting on Friday and lasting through the weekend involving House Representative Speaker uh, Paul Ryan, Health and Human Services Secretary Tom Price, White House Budget Chief Mick Mulvaney, and Trump Domestic Policy Advisor Andrew Broomberg and others. So in other words, they found this document hidden in a room. Yeah. They were able to bring that out, show a little bit of light, put it away quickly. Because huh. it might it might right. fall apart, catch right. fire or something. Well, yeah, in, in it the could sunlight. easily ignite. But uh, we'll see. Maybe they'll actually reveal what this is. And uh, yeah. Uh-oh. 
uh, it'll Samsung. turn into a Samsung phone. So, and finally, yes. Americans love their bottled water. Oh yeah, with drinking consumption reaching uh, new highs. Do you buy? Do you purchase bottled water? No, I purchase a, I purchase one and then I refill it with horrible water from whichever source is polluting and poisoning me first. Right. I don't know. My 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 tap water comes out of the mountains, so I just sort of oh, yeah. feel like it's pretty good. Uh, even topping the Almighty Soda is the best-selling drink for the first time last year. Bottle yes! of water top soda. But do they love it enough to pony up one hundred dollars a bottle? No, that's crazy. One Norwegian-based startup thinks its new bottled water of iceberg water straight from the remote fjords of Norway will set a luxury trend that they'll tap into a $14 billion U.S. water market, as estimated by the Beverage Marketing Corporation. It's iceberg water, meaning we actually go out to the fjords near the North Pole, just 800 miles away. So is 800 miles away near a location? Yeah. If it's the North Pole. I mean, yeah, if it's the really, North Pole, that's really near. There's really yeah. nothing in no, between that's there. So, close. Okay, that was my first question. They pick out icebergs that would otherwise be melting, and we take them back. We melt them and sell them. It's a small business, only producing 13,000 bottles at a time. Hold it. it didn't, if they cared about the environment, wouldn't they just go take that water, refreeze it, then take it back to the fjord and redistribute it? Not sure about the sort of the green sustainability <sighs> of the whole situation, but – Fjord water. Would you mm. pay $100 to taste fjord water? Is it just fjord with a J? Yes. Okay, yeah, for sure. Not Ford water, but fjord yeah. water. Ford water I wouldn't pay a dime for. <laughs> Isn't that the one they're pulling out of like Michigan? Ra- like out radiators? Near Detroit? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't I wouldn't touch that water, but I would for, I'd pay easily $100 a bottle for fjord water. Nice. See, this is more of a bargain than that other guy that was selling it was like Everest Air or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. And but Everest air dissipates like that. Fjord yeah. water can last for hours. Or a guy in Boston selling snow or shipping mm-hmm. fall leaves to other areas of the country. Smart people. And it's yeah. humane, too. These are icebergs that were going to melt anyway. Uh, so they didn't just go for the – they weren't, like, heating up the icebergs that were going to stay there for no, a while. But take the fjord water. Take it home. Use your energy. Freeze it. Bring it back. Repack the ice melt. What are the chances this is tap water run through a filter? Uh, 95%. Okay. <laughs> Just checking. By some guy named John Fjord. Yeah. I can't support it, though, because uh, the water was bottled by uh, child wolves. Oh, child wolf labor. That's the worst labor you can have. Pup labor. Yeah. yeah. Darn it. Well, well, yeah. Um, Standards. Oh, he just threw his bottle. Is that what that was? Just mad. Wow. That was, a, that was a bottle drop in protest. Jeff, remember, your name is a name of peace. You are supposed to bring peace to the show, not a piece of anger. No, I was washing my hands and dropping the bottle of this issue. It's hard today. I don't know if you guys have noticed this, who to trust. No. Really? Yeah. Because, like, who do you trust anymore? Like, the, like the president doesn't tr- trust his intelligence officers. He doesn't mm. trust the past president. Republicans don't trust Democrats. Do you trust your doctor? He trusts talk radio. Oh, do yeah. You, do you trust talk radio? Well, I am talk radio. But do you trust talk radio? I trust myself. Yeah. I trust that we're talking. I, I, this is the only radio show I trust. Wow. Okay. I mean, there's other shows, but this is the one I trust. First. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hey, Just a, establishing. Uh, a Florida woman claimed to be a doctor and everybody believed her, but they found out that she's she's lying. Hmm. Wow. 
Thank you, Jeff. The St. John's County, Florida Sheriff's Office said Monday that they had arrested a Jacksonville woman accused of posing as a doctor, Amy Pullman. By the way, I know an Amy Pullman. Do you? Hope it's not her. Different Amy Oh, she's Pullman. about the same age. Oh, wow. 48 is charged with two counts of practicing healthcare professional without a license. According to authorities, Pullman was hired as a home healthcare nurse in 2015 after claiming to be a registered nurse with a doctorate degree. Pullman eventually wrote up uh, care plans and visited clients before beginning work as an independent care manager. The company that employed Pullman became suspicious in 2016 and couldn't find a valid license for her, authorities said. Pullman reportedly quit after this was discovered, and uh, Pullman reportedly had displayed an award from the Mayo Clinic in her office. Wow. Um, the problem was, after investigating, they found out that, that uh, her plaque, she had actually... Uh, had purchased herself by going to a trophy store oh. and asked them to make the plaque. She actually worked at Kraft, and that's why she had the Mayo Clinic Award on no, her No, it's wall. a different – it was a different – it's a different Mayo oh, I see. than you're thinking. Um, hmm. The So she, she had her own trophy award, her own award made up for her – like to distinguish yourself. I mean, now, how I'm, far do you take this? I may be revealing my own ignorance, but yeah. nurses with doctorate degrees. You can, yeah, you could get like a you can get like a master's in nursing probably or a doctorate in nursing. Okay. So this will so she'd be a doctor nurse. Okay, I just start trying <laughs> yeah. to establish she a doctor nurse. Yeah. So you call me or doctor. Or is it nurse doctor? No, you'd be a doctor of nursing, but I I just go with doctor nurse. Okay. So this is kind of like catch me if you can. Except they proved that they could catch her. Yeah, they caught her. And then they just... So the rule, I guess, is always check your doctor's trophies, right? Well, yeah. I mean, they all have those, the, you know, the diplomas and yeah. stuff hanging on the wall. Yeah. So. I'm sorry, but the very fact that it's a doctor's trophy, it's shouldn't it's, that clue us in? Like, it's they a don't doctor have, nurse's trophy. They don't have trophies. They have plaques and certificates. Well, and, and medals. Yeah. But trophies? No, lots of doctors. They're handing out a lot of trophies now. Like best, hmm. yeah, best, uh, you know, best suturing, best. Nice stitch. Yeah. Most soothing CPR. way. Most soothing way of asking your patient to cough. Yeah. Fastest time in recovering, a, you know, a heart attack victim. Most comfortable butcher patient. paper. <laughs> Coldest stethoscope. Stuff like that. Tastiest popsicle sticks. <laughs> uh, yeah. Least gagging of a steth of a. What are they called? Of a popsicle stick. Popsicle stick in your throat. <laughs> it's all good, folks. He's all good. So remember, uh, always trust your doctor nurse and check the trophies or the medals, for that matter. We're going to take a break when we come back. Really, what uh, what do you have to know if you want to succeed in this high tech age? There's one principle we'll be talking about. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, as promised, we are we're trying to get our, our guest on the line of uh, to talk about what is the new the new principle, the thing you have to know if you're going to deal in a high tech world. Like, think about it. Back in the day, the number one key to surviving as an employee, uh, you know, may have been hard work. That may have been like the universal principle. Your company's got the ideas. They're the ones that have got the research done, the R&D put together. They've saved your job. And so you're lucky enough to have a job. Just work hard. Put your head down. And if you work strong and hard, you'll eventually get promoted. You'll make it. 
you'll succeed. But as times have changed, and now we have innovation, and now, for example, we have the ability to make music on a laptop that can sell on YouTube or can also be sold on iTunes and make somebody a living. Doesn't that describe your son? It describes my son, and he can do it all on his laptop. Or my wife and I can take our iPhone and shoot a video for an election of my son and actually edit the entire thing on our iPhone and have this really incredible high-quality one-minute commercial for my child's election. All done in the palm of our hand. It's crazy. Did he win? He, we're doing it. We're okay. just barely. It's going to take a month. It's going to take a month. But vote for Britton Townsend, Britton Bobo Townsend. Bobo is a name his friends gave him that we've never called him by that name until I, unless I want to embarrass him. But what are the principles of today's day and age when all of a sudden it can be, you know, it could be the fact that we have artificial intelligence now. You now can um, print anything you want because we have 3D printers what happens in this high, ever-changing, ever-growing, high-tech world? The principle we'll get into, hopefully, if our guest gets on the line with us, is humility. But um, until then, let me give you some other principles of life if you want to be happy, okay? Four principles that I uh, have found. They're not new, they're, and it's not grit, uh, but it might lead to grit. Uh, four lessons of happy people. If you want to be happy and you – because there's a lot we can teach our kids, right? And we're killing ourselves trying to give them every opportunity in the world. But if I, if I could just only teach my children four things, these are the four things that, boy, I think in the end are worth all the money in the world. First and foremost, if I could teach my kids to just be self-aware, meaning they could understand how they influence – others, if they could see their strengths, if they understood their weaknesses, if they really were into understanding who they are, if they understood their feelings, had their their own insights into who they are, their contributions in life, their, their greatest uh, strengths, their greatest weaknesses, if I could teach self-awareness, boy, then I would be ahead of the game. If I had a child that understood what he did well, what he doesn't do so well, and hopefully help that child also learn to to take that self-awareness and develop it into, you know, strength and go be learned and tutored and educated on those things. How cool would that be? Are your children self-aware? Do they understand the impact they have on their friends? Do they understand what their strengths are really? Or do they just kind of shy away from them and don't want to go there? Do they know if if they're good socially? Do they know if they're good academically? Do they know what, what they're good at academically? Do they know what they come what comes natural to them? Are they numbers people? Do they get the numbers? Do they are they do they love language? Self awareness is a powerful, powerful trait. And so if we could teach self awareness, that helps us understand us. One way to do this is to work with your kids and ask them questions about themselves. Like, what foods do you really like? Which foods do you notice really that, uh, that don't, don't suit you, that, that aren't good for you, that you eat? And when you eat them, have you noticed what you feel after you eat them? What, uh, what things impact your moods? 
These are great topics of conversation, things that we could be discussing with our kids. Try to identify from what they're saying about themselves. What do they feel like they do the best? What do they feel when they're out playing on a team? What insecurities do they have? Where do they feel most secure? Where do they feel most at home? How do they impact others? Just conversations. And by the way, allowing a child to feel what they're feeling. If they're sad, don't try to get them to stop feeling sad. Have them talk about their sadness. Figure out where it came from. How did they get to that feeling? Anyway, self-aware is one of the great lessons I think we should all be teaching. Another is that we, we want to teach our kids to learn to care. How many times have you asked your kid, what do you want for dinner? Like, I don't care. Well, I know you don't, but I need you to kind of care. <laughs> what do you want to do when you grow up? I don't know. I don't care. At some point, caring is, is more than just being nice, right? At some point, learning to care is, is, is something bigger than that. Caring is also – it's the great motivator, right? When somebody actually cares about something else or someone else, it actually drives emotion. To care means we know more – uh, about ourselves, but we also kind of know what drives us. It's a sense of responsibility. You know, having a dog. As a kid growing up, I cared for my dog, and even though I didn't care for cleaning up after him because I cared for the dog, I wanted the dog to have the best life. I I created more motivation. I was more in uh, a connection with this dog because of that. So, We've got to teach our kids to care about stuff, to care about their own gears, their own equipment, to care about their own thinking. Some things they they can care about are their thoughts. We care about thoughts. When we care about our thoughts, we have thoughts that we believe in. We espouse thoughts. We fight for our thinking. We can care about things, you know, our toys, our bikes, our stuff. And we try to preserve the things we care about. We can also care about people. And when I care about people, we end up taking care of people. We listen to people. We serve people. So if we could teach our kids to be self-aware and to care, holy cow, then we're on to something. We could also teach them to dare, right, to grow, to try to be stronger, to reach out, to risk. And then we could teach them to share, to serve others, to connect, to give of what they have to others. Self-aware care, share, dare. Basic skills, folks. We're going to take a break. When we come back, Ed Hess will be joining us talking about uh, the new key to dealing in the smart age. Stick with us. Powerful Principles up next. When America and the world entered the industrial age, brute strength became a less important characteristic and being smart became much, much more important. Our next guest argues that with the information age, another characteristic is becoming even more important than just being smart. Uh, You know, you got to be smart and smart in different ways uh, to make it through today's day and age. Here to explain is professor and author of the book, Humility is the New Smart, Rethinking Human Excellence in the Age, in the Smart Machine Age, is author Ed Hess. Ed, thank you so much for being with us today. 
Well, thank you, Pat, for having me. This is, um, I think, a, a needed book at this time because we hear we hear over and over all of these new technologies, robots, driverless cars, 3D manufacturing, artificial intelligence. But uh, if we're going to learn all of this or at least learn to adapt to all of this, we need some governing tools, right? That's right. And we're we're on the leading edge of what I call a technology tsunami, Matt, which is going to be as disruptive for our society, I believe, as the Industrial Revolution was for our ancestors, because these technologies coming together are going to transform the workplace, and technology is going to move from the factory floor into the office, into the retail shop, into the service places, and be able to do many, many cognitive things that we now as humans have solely in our purview. And this change is going to be huge. And it's the adaptation, human adaptation that you that you mentioned that is so critical in looking at our system, our culture and our system. We have certain things which will get in the way of our adaptation and our our ability to continuously learn, which is going to be required in this new age. And one of them is the definition of smart, what it means to be smart in our society. And the other thing is our our big me culture, which uh, basically rewards, um, in effect, the big me and self-protection and um, individualism and social Darwinism. And all of that's going to basically, I believe, going to go out the window in the smart machine age. And it's going to have to go out to the window in order for human beings to flourish and thrive. And our book is a book not about technology. It's a book about a new way of thinking and behaving, how to excel and stay relevant in the smart machine age, which the best estimates and the best research says that, you know, in the next 10 to 15 years, we could have unemployment in this country as high as 50%. Oh, my heavens. And um, and the, the chief economist of the of the Bank of England predicted that unemployment at that time in the United States, or basically 80 million jobs in the United States, would be displaced. It's not just a United States problem; it's a global problem. And so this is huge, and we're not prepared. Most people don't know what's coming; they don't understand the skills that uh, humans humans are only going to have jobs by doing the skills that technology can't do well, and that's the higher-order thinking, critical, creative, innovative thinking in jobs with high emotional engagement with others. And all of those skills require otherness, self-awareness, connecting to others, a very different mentality instead of social Darwinism's social Maslowism, I call. Instead of individualism, it's all about team. Instead of about competition, it's about collaboration and cooperation. Um, A very different model, if you will, that we that sort of dominates now in our society. And and yet it almost seems like with these revolutions and um, industrialization as a good example, we there's this lagging learning curve, it seems like. You're, it sounds like you're trying to get us ahead of the curve, um, but most of the time it seems like we tend to lag behind the curve. Is it is this something we can anticipate enough and prepare enough for that we can ride the wave? Or is the wave going to crash, people are going to be displaced, and then we're going to figure it out? Well, here's my concern, Matt. The displacement has the potential of being so huge that I, it's going to create major social challenges, all right? Yeah. And the ch- 
change, the change that we need in our education system, uh, will take years to basically implement. And what what I'm trying to do with the book, what we're trying to do with the book, if you will, it's like a Paul Revere's riot. And instead of the British, it's coming. It's the smart machines. We need to be having conver- conversations in our country as to what we're going to do about these issues vis-a-vis our social safety net, vis-a-vis the meaning of work, uh, vis-a-vis training people. And um, what the book puts forth is sort of a, a model that an individual, that you, me, any individual listening can basically say, okay, what does this mean for me? And it starts with a new definition of smart. And in our culture today, being smart means that, you know, I know a lot. Yeah, intelligent. It's a quantity definition. If you think about who's who's smart in school, the kids that get the highest grades. Why do they get the highest grades? They don't make mistakes. Well, under that rule, we're never going to be as smart as technology. Technology will remember no remember more, no more, process it, remember it perfectly, recall it faster. We can't win trying to be a quantity-based thinker. What we've got to do is go to what I call, what we call new smart. New smart is defining ourselves not by how much I know or what I know, but by the quality of my thinking, listening, relating, and collaborating. And if you think about it, three of those words immediately mean with others. Mm. What's key is is that you know it's you know we need to identify not what our ideas and I'm not talking about anything about values I'm talking about ideas and beliefs not values we got to decouple our beliefs from our ego we can't define ourselves by what we know we got to define ourselves by how we think listen relate and collaborate be open-minded and treat our beliefs as hypothesis to be tested almost think more like a scientist in all of this and the big thing is mistakes and failures are learning opportunities because we're all going to have to be expert, iterative learners. It's, it's almost going to be like we're going back to the hunter-gatherer days. We're going to be going into new areas because we're constantly going to have to be relearning. Most jobs that people have jobs will, will be obsolete within five years as technology advances, so we're going to have to be expert iterative learners, just like we were when children, just like when we got on the bicycle to learn to ride a bicycle. We, we had the courage to try. We weren't afraid of falling off, and we learned uh, by doing, and that's what it's going to take, which is going to take really a transformation of, if you will, of how humans think and, and, what, and how we think about smart, and you get to the word humility. Humility is the gateway to higher order thinking, to higher order listening, because in, when we talk about humility, we're not meaning the dictionary definition. Now we're not talking about meekness or submissiveness or thinking lowly of yourself. It's the psychological construct, having an accurate view of your abilities and achievements, being able to acknowledge your mistakes and what you don't know and your limitations, being open-minded, okay? keeping one ability and accomplishments in perspective and having a low focus on self. This whole system that we're talking about, to be an expert listener, to be an expert thinker, to be an expert collaborator, you've got to tamp down the ego, the big me lens, the self-protective, self-defensive, our way of, you know, the, that inner chatter in our head, uh, which raises our insecurity and our fears and our competition and our comparison to each other. We've got to, we basically got to train our minds to 
basically think better. We've got to train ourselves to listen better. We've got to train ourselves to work in teams better. And those people that can do that will be much better prepared for what's coming. Mm. Is it, it? And again, it's so counter the last 50 years, you know, where it was more about you, your knowledge, your knowledge base. It, but, but you're saying this, this will be the survival skill yes. professionally. Yes, it will be the survival skill because, and the reason I say this is, this is what the science says. This is what the science of psychology says as to how we, how we think. Base, basically, all of us, our natural reflexive way of thinking is to basically process information which confirms what we believe and we basically create cohesive stories to basically go with what we believe. We're basically confirmation machines. Mm-hmm. Emotionally, we are naturally reactive and we def- we're defensive. If our thinking is challenged, we become emotionally defensive. And the whole, whole process is, 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 is that we're emotionally, we seek ego affirmation and confirmation of what we think. And that basically doesn't lead to open-mindedness. It doesn't lead to learning. It doesn't lead to actively listening. It doesn't lead to actively collaborating. And the science says that I cannot think critically or, or innovatively by myself because mm. I can't overcome my cognitive biases. I need you to help me. I, and, and people have to get to the point, instead of feeling insecure when their thinking is challenged, they've got to feel insecure when their thinking is not challenged. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you have to flip the cur- you have to flip the order, and and then um, and be willing to constantly learn and learn and not have your reactive ego, your fight or flight, kick in. That you're exactly right. You're exactly right. And, Boy, and it's a it's it's a but it's it's a personal journey. All right, it's a personal journey, and in the book we have a, di- a diagnostic for people to take where they can see where they are, and then we put forth the best science of training and deliberate practice expertise. How can you train yourself uh, and work on these things and, and get better so you, so you can stay relevant, so you can continue to, to learn? And, it's, 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 and it's, it really is um, a challenging time we're going into, but we, we put out a, an aspirational story about a journey to human excellence with stories of people and processes and especially businesses that, that have created cultures that enable this type of, of behave, these mindsets and this type of behaving. And so you can actually read and, and hear other people's stories and read the science about it in a very accessible way. It's funny, um, Ed, I've been teaching similar principles for marriage for about 15 years, and it makes sense in a marriage world where we have to collaborate, not compete, communicate, and and I mean, it is, but it is, the, it's this humility. To, to think of it now moving forward to being your number one life skill, if you want to deal in a smart machine age, and it, it will be make or break, it sounds like. It's, I mean, 50% of, uh, of the people will be unemployed, and a lot of the jobs that we traditionally had our egos wrapped around will easily, more easily be done by a machine than anything. So how do we, I guess part of this is uh, noticing the problem. That's part of the humility is noticing the need to start learning. Yes, it's, it's, it's being open to it, and you're, you're, you're quite correct. And what's going to be different this time than the Industrial Revolution is, is that the the smart machines, um, and especially artificial intelligence, 
They're going to take over many, many service jobs, and they're going to enter the professions, accounting, law, finance, consulting, um, even medicine somewhat, architecture, um, um, so that, you know, it's not just going to be, if you will, uh, historically the, the factory worker. It's going to be when you go into the services, retail, fast food, manual laborers and construction, you know, truck drivers, accountants, paralegals, telemarketers, security guards. Mm. I mean, it's going to be broad. And, and so this, this accepting the fact it's coming and start preparing yourself, your children, okay, and your grandchildren, whoever. Okay, how do we how do we cope? And then, if we can get this conversation going in the country and people start working on this, then we can have the big social issues as to okay, how are we going to basically, you know, deal with this as go along? How are we going to retrain people uh, uh, to be able to do to do the jobs that technology can do as technology continues to advance? What are we going to do as a society with? Uh, how do people find dignity? How do people basically help each other in a, you know, in effect in, in communities? It's going to be a very community, back to community, uh, back to co- uh, collaboration. And you're right. It's, it, it has the chance. I mean, it's going to be very stressful, and it's not going to work equally well. Mm. But it has the chance to really uh, transform our society much more into a humanistic uh, environment. Yeah, yeah. No, I can totally see how that will happen. Ed, let's take a break, uh, come back, and continue discussing your book, Humility is the New Smart, Rethinking Human Excellence in the Smart Machine Age. More with Edward Hess, Professor of Business Administration at uh, the University of Virginia. Stick with us, folks. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we're talking about learning how to be smart and uh, and to do so in the smart age. Because smart is going to need to be redefined, and it's it will include a lot more collaboration, a lot uh, a lot of humility, uh, iteration, of, uh, and iterative learning processes, the willingness to be humble enough to know what you don't know. And to know how to go about to uh, aggregating the accurate information that you need, joining us to talk about it is Edward D. Hess. He's a professor of business administration at uh, and the Batten Executive in Residence at the Darden Graduate School of Business at the University of Virginia. He spent over 30 years in the business world prior to joining academia. He was a lawyer, an investment banker, a strategy consultant, and an entrepreneur. Ed Hess, thank you again for being with us today. Thank you for having me, Matt. So really what you're saying is, in the end, this, the skills of like open-mindedness are going to be maybe more important than uh, even the immediate learning you're bringing from your university. That's correct. Um, the mindset, having, having an iterative learning mindset or having developed a, a learning toolbox having the tools that are going to allow you to be a good lifelong learner and having developed specific behaviors, a quiet ego, being able to manage your thinking and manage your emotions, be able to really listen, what I call reflectively listening, and what otherness, how you connect and relate and emotionally engage with other people in order to build positive regard 
and trust. Hmm. And because that type of those types of trusting relationships are going to be critical to working in teams and to creating uh, creating value uh, for yourself and for society and for your fellow uh, man and woman, for your children, and that 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 concept of otherness is going to be again it's going to go against the grain of individualism and it's this you know we're we're back to caring for one another we're going to have to basically really work together as a society as a human race yeah. in order to basically thrive in an environment where smart technology is doing more and more things and we have more and more free time, and we have to confront the issue vis-a-vis upward social mobility. What is the American dream in that environment? What's the meaning of work? How do people feel good about themselves and uh, vis-a-vis, you know, meaning, dignity? Uh, all of these are big concepts, uh, you know, that, that go back thousands of years, and we've sort of been operating on autopilot ever since World War II. Uh, as a country, and uh, going further and further down the road towards individualism and competition and social Darwinism and um, um, me versus you, us versus them. And wow, all of a sudden, technology is going to almost require us to become more humanistic, maybe more moral, maybe more ethical, maybe more um, people-oriented. And and really, because it's it almost sounds you know paradoxical, right? Like because you would think that yeah. technology would tear us apart and would make us almost less human, more autonom- autonomic, automatic. But in reality, I guess you're saying it, it, it will probably heighten the human experience, and it might become even more. It will become even more prized, more valuable to us. It it will be necessary for us as society to thrive and flourish and for us as an individuals because the emotional aspects the emotional aspects of life will be those, be those aspects that will be the hardest for technology to replicate mm. all right yeah and so if if you will it's a little bit like uh you know if you, if you go back to um Mr. Spock you know where he doesn't like the you know humans illogic and foolish emotions well <laughs> the smart machine age is going to shatter that because the things that make us unique is is emotional okay is the ability to connect with other humans it's imagination it's to be be with people and find meaning and somehow we got to overlay the economics on top of that if if we're you know if we're in a position of having a significant number of people who uh, don't have work. And then even for those people that have work, most people, even today, and the Department of Labor says today in the United States, over 40% of the people working are basically independent contractors or entrepreneurs or freelancers or giggers who don't have full-time jobs. Mm-hmm. Well, that's going to even be more the norm going forward because even if you have a full-time job in a company, that job is going to change, and you're going to find companies moving more to like a tour duty, like a military tour right. duty, two, four-year term, and then you, you know, you renegotiate. And uh, uh, 
So this whole concept, okay, how do we as a society, you know, our education system and our business system was built for the Industrial Revolution, mass production, mass consumption, efficiency, productivity, and scale. We don't need a lot of people anymore to build stuff. Mm-hmm. Technology is going to do that. We, what we need is, is people that are going to be well-versed to focus on, if you will, the hard things, the emotional intelligence, the creativity, the imagination, and the service to other humans, okay? Elementary school teachers, psychologists, sociologists, home health care workers, physical therapists, uh, coaches, uh, counselors, all the people that are involved with helping human beings. Most of those people are going to, for the near future, at least as far as we know, are going to be have secure jobs, and then those jobs are going to become very competitive. So even those people have got to take their emotional intelligence and their relating and listening and collaborating skills to a higher level. And we need to start teaching those skills in in our schools. We need to, you know, it's yeah. different than just, it's different. It's, well, you know this. You do marriage counseling and you teach it, all right? You understand exactly what 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 I'm talking about because it's that ability to, to shut down the self and the defensiveness and the protectiveness to be very open to the reality, human reality and the reality in the world so you, be, so you have better data and not to be so defensive mm. and you define yourself different. It's a quality definition instead of, you know, how much I know or being right. It's far more important to be accurate than it is to be right. Oh, it's so true. Well, you know what, Ed, I think you're on to it. And I am so excited about the book. I, I think everybody, where, where we get, it's so easy to be afraid that we don't do anything. But really, when you think of uh, this book, Humility is the New Smart, Rethinking Human Excellence in the Smart Machine Age, maybe it does mean it's time to, to get ahead of the curve on this one and um, start teaching our kids, our grandkids, what to do and make sure we possess the skills ourselves. Um, Ed Hess, thank you so much for being with us. Again, check out the book, Humility is the New Smart, and do what you can to not just not just bemoan it and be angry about it and frustrated. Let's ride the wave. Let's get on it and figure out how to connect better with humans, how to learn and be good at learning. And get your confidence from your ability to connect with others and to learn and to grow and to be dynamic instead of your confidence coming from your skill, your one, you know, the trade you've been exercising or the job you have. How interesting is that? The idea that your job could be rotating every four years or scary. Stick with us, folks. We'll take a break. We'll come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1 855 Chat BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. Hey, we're here to help you uh, get through life, help give you a leg up. A lot of us, you know, we just don't, we don't have the latest and greatest research, but we want to be the best people we can be. That's what this show provides you. We've got a great topic today. We will be speaking with Dr. Brian Willoughby here from Brigham Young University 
Dr. Willoughby is an expert on marriage and family. And today we're going to be talking about an interfaith marriage. If you and your spouse have different religious uh, beliefs and devotion to different churches, how do you negotiate through that? So you don't mean like once one of the two has faith in Donald Trump, the other does not. No, that would be political. Okay, parties. Uh, but like, but if one's a republic or one's a a, um, a Catholic, one is a Protestant. Can they live together? Can this work? Yes, of course, it can. We know a Republican and a Democrat can't work. We know that. But we haven't seen that for a very long time. But it can work in your marriages as well. In fact, that would be a great topic to ask Dr. Willoughby about someday. For sure. My my mom's a Republican. My dad's a Democrat. Really? Mm-hmm. And they're still married? Yeah. But look at their kids. What, what are you trying to say? Nothing. Anyway, we've got a lot to talk about today. We will be uh, also speaking with, of course, our good friends at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. Uh, BYU beat Loyola Marymount, so I think they're now set to play St. Mary's. Can they get through that hurdle? Now, what about interfaith uh, sports? Mm. Can we get over that? That was interfaith right there. It's (laughs) such a good point. Such a good point. And uh, apparently, we'll see how how we handle it. Uh, We'll talk to them about that. Also do a lot of empty news, uh, Matt Townsend news. We'll be talking about how much luggage is too much luggage to take on a trip. Would you say, Jeffrey, that 506 tons of luggage for one person is a bit much? It's a little excessive. But, you know, I think men are always under the impression that, you know, anything outside of a backpack is too much. Yeah. Well, this this happens to be a man. Really? That packs 506 tons of luggage. Not just any man. Not just any man. He's a very kingly man. Donald Trump? No. Oh. We'll talk. We'll talk. Stick with us. That story's coming up next. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? Saying their patience is at an end, conservative activist groups backed by billionaire Koch brothers and other powerful interests on the right are mobilizing to pressure Republicans to fulfill their promise to swiftly repeal the Affordable Care Act. Their message is blunt and unforgiving with the goal of reawakening some of the most extensive conservative grassroots networks in the country. It is a reminder that even as Republicans control both the White House and Congress for the first time in a decade, the party's activist wing remains relentless and will not go along passively for the sake of party unity. Yeah. Isn't that Donald Trump's business card blunt and unforgiving? Mm -hmm. President. So the activists are going to start pressuring Congress to actually do something, even though they're having a problem agreeing on what exactly to do. It seems like they are doing something. Yeah, it's not going to sit well with many people, though. A manhunt is underway in Washington State for an individual who shot a Sikh man in the arm after Mm. telling him, go back to your country. The incident in Kent, Washington, is being probed as a hate crime. A Sikh community leader in Seattle told CNN that the victim is a U.S. citizen originally from India. The gunman allegedly approached the victim on his driveway Friday, questioning him about cleaning his car before calling him names and pushing him to the ground. The victim was released from the hospital Saturday and is expected to make a full recovery. In addition to police, uh, officials in Washington say 
Uh, they have contacted the FBI, and it's now a joint investigation. Oh, boy. search for this guy. Americans across the political spectrum are worried that the United States is losing a fundamental national identity, a new poll from the AP says. Uh, seven in ten Americans say America is losing track of the beliefs and values of the country and uh, values that the country represents. And that concern holds true across party lines. Of course, the nature of that national identity is much more controversial. Republicans are likely to cite culturally grounded, a culture grounded in Christian beliefs and the traditions of early European immigrants, the AP reports, while Democrats point to the country's history of mixing people from all around the globe. A majority of self-identified members of both majority parties value the American tradition of offering refuge to the persecuted, there is so much turmoil in American po- uh, political situation right now, says a poll participant. People's ideas of what is America's place in the world are so different from one end of the spectrum to the other. Yeah. Yeah. Can't quite agree on what we should no. do, but we all agree that we should do something. we, we got to do something, but what, we don't know what to do. <laughs> and finally, parents at St. Francis High School in California included some of the most world's wealthiest technology investors. Ooh. Right. Yeah. Northern California to uh, fund scholarships for less well-off families. They clubbed together and invested in a technology stock. Oh, cool. Oh, I heard about this. They invested in Snapchat. Snapchat. And Snapchat had their IPO, mm-hmm. a multi-billion dollar. Nice launch. Huge, successful launch for a company that loses a lot of money. But it's still there. But nevertheless, they predicted, they, they put in $15,000, this this group at the school. fifteen grand. Just rich parents, PTA group. But these are like, like venture capitalist investors. Yeah. These are people who invest in technology companies, right? So they can kind of look at a, look at maybe this. Maybe insider trading. A better, maybe a little bit, but I, I think more of the idea they can look at it and say there's something yeah. here. They know they know the industry. This, they, is, yeah. this is a safest investment you could make, even though they're not really safe. Yeah. But he's making a safer, more informed How, how, how did they do? They put in 15000 and after the uh, IPO, it'll make them $24 million. Oh, okay. They did okay. Hey, yeah. Are there any other companies out there that are named after um, things that FDR did? No, those were fireside chats. Oh, I thought they were Snapchat. No. Mm-hmm. Interesting. He, he may have snapped during one of them, but no, they're fireside chats. Twenty-four so they're, million they're scholarship fund for less well-off families. They put together fifteen grand. Well, that seems to cover. That seems like that would cover all of the. And there's some perpetual activity with this too that'll keep feeding. Oh, yeah. the fund. I mean, just off the interest alone, they could probably take care of most of the kids at the school and letting them. Boy, what if they had just? What if they had informed other schools around the country? That would or, have been. I was thinking about this. There were several school districts that invested in Bernie Madoff, mm-hmm. right, in his Ponzi scheme that turned out to be. Yeah. And they lost their entire retirements. Yeah, that the was. Retirement funds were invested in this because he was saying he was going to give you so mm-hmm. much in return, so much percentage return on your investment, and then it fell through. So. I don't know how – because this is kind of a, a big bet. Oh, yeah. Going, I mean, Snapchat, it's a goofy app on a phone, and you're investing that kind of money in it, and it turned into something. Boy, you know so, – I don't know. I think my school, we, we used to sell Tootsie Roll tins right. where you could pay a dollar and get like 20 Tootsie Rolls. That's how we raised money. It's a good value. Uh, I wish I had gone to this school because I probably could have had my tuition paid. Hmm. Or any school fees or yeah. whatever. It could all have been paid for. How good for that's really that's incredible. Right. But are they happy? That's a, probably. Are they yeah. They just took care of a lot of people that wouldn't have had the chance to go to college. Come on. That's pretty cool. Um what about uh 
the Girl Scouts. So the the cookies are starting to come out. Yeah, I have three boxes on my uh, counter at home. They even say now the Girl Scouts that are really doing well, they use the square, the little device. Square of, payments. The square yep. payments. So they can take credit cards. Do you? If you've got a if you've got a, a brownie or a Girl Scout that's you know using a square and collecting using credit cards, they're in the they're in the big money now. Right. Do you want to know the secret that no Girl Scout or girl, especially Girl Scout leader, wants you to know? What? All of their cookies can be purchased in the grocery store, just under a different brand name, for a fraction of the price. What? If you want thin mints, get the fudge mint. Cookies, a buck fifty at Winco. You want Samoas? Samoa same what? exact, same exact cookie. The the coconut chocolate caramel cookie, buck mm-hmm. fifty at Winco. Boy, what are you? Are you like against Girl Scouts? Tagalongs, the fudge peanut butter cookies, a buck fifty at Winco. I don't know if I'm anti Girl Scouts or pro Winco. <laughs> Sounds like you're pro Winco. W-I-N-C-O. Oh, sorry. We're not allowed to say that name. So it's, it's, Flin, it's Flinco. It's a store that rhymes with Flinco. Flinco. Um, crazy little ditty for you. Uh, $20 debt leads to melee, a melee at Florida Girl Scout cookie stand outside of a Walmart. Believe it or not, out of Florida, this news. No way. Yeah, way. Law enforcement what? officials say an argument over a $20 debt led to a melee at a Girl Scout cookie stand. Guess, guess what happened? Deputies arrested two teenage brothers on disorderly conduct and battery charges following the Saturday evening attack. Arriving deputies say the teens knocked over a table, scattered boxes of Girl Scout cookies outside the Palm Coast store. The teens, ages 18 and 16, told the deputies they asked for the money that the one of the girls that one of the girls owed them. And when an adult at the stand told them they couldn't pay, the family demanded to be paid in cookies. Mm. Give me – then pay us in cookies. They do charge way too much for batteries these days. No, I think – you know what? We're, you know what we're going to do on the show? Because this happens a lot, uh, Jeffrey. Um, we're going to get your ears checked. Because of, the, because of the incident earlier in your life. It was just one ear. Huh? We're going to get we're going to get them checked because this wasn't about batteries. This was like a salt and battery. It was like a charge. It See now, a... salt is very affordable. <sighs> it's best just to ignore and move on. I can't. Hmm. Well, if you try to explain, it just gets more confusing. When an adult at the stand uh, told them they couldn't pay, they demanded to be paid in cookies. The arrest report says the boys then punched a man, a woman, and a teenager before smashing cookie boxes. Hmm. It seemed to escalate to a point where it didn't need to go. Yeah. Just give them your cookies. Yeah, what's up with that? Man. They have boxes of them. It's oh, like... by the way, tossing cookies. Hmm. Everywhere. Right. Yeah. How many Girl Scout cookies can you name? Two. Let's hear them. Thin Mint, and Samoas. Terry, do you know any? Those are my two. Oh. Those are the good ones. Yeah. So what, Now, what about the Tagalongs, the peanut butter ones? <laughs> Tagalongs? <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't eat those. Yeah. 
I don't – for some reason, I don't see very many Girl Scouts around anymore. I don't know what I've done. Because they're always sold out. Just go to the right grocery stores. Apparently, just go to Winco. No, no Flinco. Go to Blinco. They hang out at the doors. No, you go to the Girl Scouts, you track them down, and you pay five bucks a box. Not only What's are the rate. What do they charge? I don't know. My they're they're them. high now. But not only are these off-brand cookies cheaper than the Girl Scout cookies, they're better. But you're no, they they taste better. You're I'm, changing I'm a Girl you. Scout's life when you buy those cookies. You're changing a life, Jeff. Changing a life. And Terry, will you make sure we schedule that hearing appointment? Okay, we'll do that. I want to. Make I have sure an we... audiologist on 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 standby. Hey, standby. I've got a hearing coming up on Wednesday. But we can talk about that later. That's a different hearing. Uh, we've got to get to the Saudi king. A Saudi king is reported to be taking 506 tons of luggage, including two limousines, on his trip to Indonesia. Saudi Arabia's king is heading to Indonesia this week for a nine-day visit. It will be the first time in 46 years the Saudi king has visited the world's largest Muslim nation. But Salman uh, has come prepared. According to reports in Indonesia Press, the royal Saudi royal is expected to bring 459 metric tons or 506 U.S. tons of cargo with him on the trip, including two Mercedes-Benz S600 limousines, two electric elevators. The air freight company handling the cargo is employing a total of 572 workers to deal with the king's luggage. He came to the U.S. several years ago and had a similar, I mean, luggage requirement. So, I get it. I mean, I get you want you want to have a lot of stuff. You yeah. want to have you want to have the comforts of home, right? But you know, what point? I mean, what? I mean that that would be everything in my home. That I, would be my home. Well, I just think it's surprising that the king of Audis is not bringing an Audi. He is totally deaf. The guy cannot hear. By the way, you're probably going to try to convince me that this music is Greek music, too. No. Everyone knows this is Argentine. Now, that, this is great music. Speaking of bad of hearing. Pardon? Okay, folks, we'll take a break. When we come back, Dr. Brian Willoughby will be joining us. We're talking... Your family, your marriage, and your faith. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends. In the studio with us, Dr. Brian Willoughby. He's an associate professor in the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University. Dr. Willoughby is also the director, actually, no longer the director of Relate Institute. That's right. That's, right. That's been moving on it's in a on. beautiful way and progressing. Yeah. Um, but Dr. Willoughby's here today to talk to us about faith in our marriage. Uh, two things I wanted to talk about. There is a recent re- report about the importance of sharing your faith, your religion, with your partner. Yes. But also you want to talk about what happens when one of us is of one faith's belief system and one's from another. Right. Interfaith marriage. Interfaith marriage. That's right. Talk about... Why, why does it matter? It's, I guess many of us would think it's obvious why it matters, but why does religion matter in marriage? So the interesting thing about marriage, and so this, this gets to not just marriages but families yeah. in general, is that we spend a lot of time when we talk about marriage or families talking about communication, 
talking about things like rules, talking about traditions, talking about these behaviors that we do. Right. We don't talk as much about where do those come from, right? Yeah. Where does our communication come from or what we talk about, how we talk about. And part of that is our skills and our personality. But another big part of that when we're in a marriage is something called a paradigm, which is based on our values. So the idea is that each of us has a value set, how we think the world operates, right? And so this right. isn't even tied to religion. This is just we all have this kind of it's come idea from somewhere. Of, What's how the world works, yeah. how people work, what, what what our moral code is, and that really dictates what our marriage looks like. Because if I think, for example, if I think that, well, I think healthy marriages are about having date nights, mm-hmm. well, then that's that's going to dictate how I talk and what I do in my marriage. That's right. Now, religion for a lot of people is the moral code through which their values are developed, and this is why religion is so vital to marriages yeah. because that's where my paradigms, that's where my belief set, that's how I think the world operates. That's where I'm getting it from is my religious faith. And so as I communicate my religious faith to my partner in a marriage, whatever my faith is and whatever my partner's faith is, this becomes the essential building block of mm. really what we're founding our marriage yeah. on. This is fidelity, right? So when when you talk about fidelity, it's, it's, it's going to go back to your commitments to each other, your right. trust. And, and again, how many of these marriages begin in a church anyway? That's right. But it's almost like we forget the churchly, the churchy side of it. That's right. Yeah. It, that's becoming more and more of a social custom more mm-hmm. than anything else is it's a, it's a convenient large area yeah. to put a bunch of people in sometimes yeah. for a lot of people. Um, but even if I'm not super religious, even if I'm that kind of Easter Christmas kind yeah. of person, I've, I'm usually borrowing some of, like I said, my deeper value set from whatever religion I, I grew up in or whatever religion or faith that I'm, I'm connected to now. And again, whatever it is, whatever it looks like to me is going to have a very big impact on how, how I create my marriage mm. with my partner. Do you – I mean, and I guess if – because this goes to the deepest issue, it seems like – so the more similar our value system is – not I guess it's not even always the church you're going to, but the more similar we are in – the practice and the understanding of our values, the better off we'd be. That's right. So we know that people of similar faith, when they get married, have substantially lower divorce rates. Mm. And it's not because there's anything magical about certain religions, because we see that across the religion. It doesn't matter if you're Catholic or Jewish or whatever your faith is, your divorce rate is lower if you marry someone of that faith. And it's because of the same principle. Well, if I marry someone of my same faith, our underlying values and beliefs about the world are going to be similar. That just makes it easier to create a marriage mm-hmm. because as we're talking about even things like who's going to do the dishes, how are we going to raise our kids, who's going to work, what are our gender roles in our marriage, right. those conversations are just easier because we're coming from a similar base. And we – I mean you, we even if we have differences in how we want to practice, we still are talking the same words. Right. Yeah. Right? So that negotiation is easy yeah. because yeah. we're not trying to convince each other of the underlying value. So what do we need to do – if we come from different faith sets, different belief systems. Right. So, so this, this is where it gets the a little interfaith. bit trickier, right? And, and the baseline we know, again, from research is that interfaith marriages have a higher risk of divorce. Again, not because there's anything Which, inherently negative about an interfaith right, marriage, right. but it comes back to this value. But piece. you can almost hear people say, oh, that's just, that's just churchy people saying that. that right. don't, they just want to control you into only marrying your right. type. Right. Well, it's, that's what the numbers are telling us. <laughs> the, the, the numbers, and again, the research shows It that. doesn't matter what my faith is. So right. it's, not, it's not about certain combinations, although certain combinations do have higher or lower divorce rates. Yeah. 
But it's that value set underneath that, again, when we have a different set of beliefs and values about how the world operates, it makes that negotiation harder. So if we have or if I'm in an interfaith marriage, it makes, first off, the communication piece really vital. Yeah. Is we have to now be openly communicating not just about what I want in terms of roles and rules, but about the values, right? Because there can easily be misunderstanding about not just religious beliefs, but just about how I think about the world and how I think about people, how I think about marriage sometimes as an institution can also change a little bit. You got to talk. You got it. But you all, I guess you have to, part of the talking seems like um, that that helps me understand what the religion means to you, why it means it. Because for some, they just might believe it so deeply. Right. And if, I mean, if everything is about going to hell, Mm Mm-hmm. Then for some, then every decision is pivotal. Right. You know, how we talk, how we act, what we do, everything. And some are like, relax. Right. And where a lot of interfaith couples trip up a little bit is that religion is one of those topics like you don't talk about, right? Mm -hmm. Politics, religion. And a lot of interfaith couples then get in this mindset of, well, you have your faith and I have my faith and we're just going to leave each other alone. And then we can't figure out why we're fighting all the time. We're not fighting about religion, but we fight about all these other things. And so it really is critical that, again, we don't have this open conversation about religion, although I do think it's important that I learn about your faith and understand your faith. But then the question, the key question to ask ourselves is, how does your faith translate to our marriage? So what is it about your faith and your religious practices that are going to impact our marriage or particularly impact our childbearing? Because typically that mentality of, well, I'll just leave you alone – works great till we have kids. No, exactly. And now when we have kids, we have to create this parenting paradigm. Right. How are we going to raise the kids? What are the values? And, and a lot of people think, well, it's just about which church are those kids yeah. going to go to. And it's not just about that. It's what values are we going to teach the kids? That's why it gets so much trickier because as an adult, I'm not trying to teach you values. I assume that you have those. Mm-hmm. But I want to teach my kids values. And if we have a different values base. Right. That's where that tension can be. Well, and, and some churches demand more from you. I mean, I've had a lot of clients, what, when they start communicating, what they're mad about is that you are gone all Sunday. You're gone one night a week. You're giving all this time and energy to the church. You're paying tithing to a church. You're doing all of this, and I'm not even a part of it. And so it's almost more like you love your church more than you do me, yeah. and it becomes yeah. It adds, it adds that behavior. And that's why the interesting thing is is that a very religious person that's interfaithly married to someone that's not very active in their church is actually somewhat better in terms of divorce rate than two really strongly faithful people. Of in their own value. Faith. Oh, interesting. Because then what happens, like you're saying, is not only am I gone all the time, well, you're gone all the time too. And yeah. it's not the same time. Right. You know, we might have different Sabbath days. We might have different worship services, different, like you said, during the week, different church groups that we're going to. And it's really hard to balance all that sometimes. So when we're communicating, we also – it seems like there's some point we've got to actually – I have to appreciate what you believe. Right. Even if I – even if it's counter to what I believe. That's right. How do we do that? So so there's a couple different things that have to happen there. One is – and the first kind of barrier is I have to – and this is hard if I'm a religious person. I have to understand that there's value in other faiths. That doesn't mean I have to agree with it. doesn't mm-hmm. mean I have to necessarily believe it, but I have to see the value. that. And that this is, I think, true of most religions is, is most faiths are based on a moral code that make people better, right? They're, right. they're, they're aimed at helping people be, make good decisions in their life, treat other people with kindness and respect. And so I have to be able to see the value in your belief set and how it's, again, how, helping us have a good marriage. Yeah. 
and helping contribute to that marriage. That's the first step. The second step is that I have to respect the differences. Mm. And that's really hard. We don't like differences. We want to compromise. We live in a world where in a marriage we have this idea of we have to agree at the end. That's why we communicate, yeah. to agree. Yeah, then we'll agree and then it'll all be good. Right. And in this case, we have to agree to disagree. And that doesn't mean that we don't – we just drop it and ignore it. But we have to figure – again, that, that's where that disconnecting it from religion, saying what does this mean for our marriage and what is the negotiation in our relationship going to be Yeah, is key. So, so if we're communicating and then I'm trying to respect what I can because I guess that leads me and these talks lead me to learning what – what they are about. Right. And as soon as I respect what you do, that's when those things I say, okay, well, you're going to go out on, on this weeknight and, and, and maybe it's you know, doing some missionary work for your church or maybe it's a service opportunity for your church. And I don't agree with it and I wouldn't do it on myself, but yeah. I respect that you're doing it because I see that when you're, let's say it's a service opportunity, serving other people, you come home and you're happy and you're more Better. likely to serve me. Yeah. And so I can respect that. That's cool. And we can carve out a place for that in our yeah. family. And it seems like because the these are all good things and good ideas that we could find where we believe together. Right. Because we can we can disagree but still right. agree on principles. Right. And that, that's, that's where the parenting rail can be solved a little bit. Yeah. Because if I don't agree that you're going out knocking door to door and, and doing missionary work, but I, I see that it's service and you're trying to help other people mm-hmm. and teach them how to be good, well, I agree with that. Yeah, and my religion that's a good teaches thing. that. So that's right. what we can teach our kids is say, I hey, see. look, when dad's going out and doing this, it's about helping people. And here's how mom goes out and helps people. And that's what we want you to do oh, is huge. to help people. Instead of being I – because mean, I could just fixate on what I don't like. Right. And that's not yeah. going anywhere. Yeah, Dad believes this weird thing. Yeah, Dad's such a yeah. creep. Hey, uh, let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Brian Willoughby, Associate Professor in the School of Family Life at BYU here, and uh, really a, a, an expert in dating, sexuality, cohabitation, marriage formation, marital attitudes and beliefs. He's just a great resource for all of us. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. In studio with us, Dr. Brian Willoughby, an associate professor in the School of Family Life at BYU. And today he's talking to us about interfaith marriage. If you happen to be married to someone of another faith, what you can do, why it's important. So far, he's been teaching us you got to communicate. You gotta, you're got you going to have to understand the differences. Yes. And then find some respect, some reverence for the difference. That's right. Yeah. And then What? So, so then I think I, I think it's important to talk about one particular element of interfaith marriages, which is rituals. Mm. So most religious faiths have specific rituals that they tie into. And those might be weekly rituals. They might be rituals that, that come up again with child rearing, you know, when kids are a certain age, things like baptism, yeah. taking the sacrament for the first time, um, you know, certain marriage rituals in some cases. Um, a lot of times those can be kind of flashpoints. Of conflict because there's anytime we have a ritual, there tends to be a lot of symbolism right. tied to it, and so these these can be kind of these moments of okay. And again, like I said, because many couples kind of ignore these things and just kind of try to brush them under the rug, 
this is when it flares up. You know, are we <laughs> going to let our child be baptized in this church? Are yeah. we going to let our 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 child go through confirmation in this particular church? And so th- those are particular moments, and, and, and oftentimes they can be very conflictual, but I think they're good opportunities to have a lot of these specific conversations we're talking about and to sit down and, again, not in front of the kids yeah. but behind the scenes and, and talk about – what did this what does this mean? What will this mean in the future for our children if they do this? What are the values behind it? What's the symbolism behind it? Are there ways that we can approach this? Because a lot of times kids feel very anxious about these rituals because mm-hmm. they feel like it's kind of almost like a divorce. Like, well, I have to pick yeah. mom or dad. Which faith am I going to? Yeah, which faith yeah. am I going to? Um, but – and this feels kind of sacrilegious in some ways. But approaching his parents and say, again – Here's the values and symbolism behind this, and here's where me and mom can agree. Yeah, that if you if you decide to get confirmed in this particular faith, here's what it means in this church. But then here's what it means for you as a person. Here's what it's going to mean for us as a family. And and again, the more that that can be a joint piece, mm-hmm. and I actually think it's really good. And I tell I tell this to my tell this to my students all the time. It's okay to see mom and dad disagree. Yeah, it's especially healthy. if it's done in a healthy way. Right. You know, I think there's something powerful for kids to see their parents come to them and say, you know what, me and your mom, we don't agree on this, but here's how we've negotiated. Here's how we've come together. And here's what we're going to do as a family. And we cre- and that's where you create a compromise. Right. Is it, um, I guess in the end too, I mean, because if you could show that you can be good at compromise on religion, mm-hmm. I mean, it is what it is. If you've, if, if you are of different faiths, then that very decision that you made many moons ago to now marry to marry is now you're going to have to make work. Right. And yes. you you can do it. Yeah. It's yeah. harder. Right. It that's, does. that's something that's that, but, but harder, like you're saying, could actually be strengthening. It could be better. Yeah, if if done the right way. And yeah. that that's like a lot of things in life. When you make a decision that's not the easiest one. Because mm-hmm. it's like I said, the numbers tell us it's easier to marry someone of your faith. Yeah. Because of that values piece. But if I put myself on this road because I love the person and they have all these traits that I wanted in, in, a, in a spouse and in, in, in a co-parent, then I'm going to make it work. And with the potential, like you said, to even have a stronger family because of it. What if I um, – at what point – like if my child decides to go to my wife's church, it seems like it doesn't – and even if I have differences in beliefs, it doesn't mean I can't – appreciate their people. I can't I can still right. go to their events and yeah. know the people that will be associating with my son and still be parental. Right. Yeah. And, and involved. And that can be really hard yeah. because like I said, if I if I truly believe that eternal salvation is at yeah. play there's that. with my children. Yeah. There's there's that whole side. But if I can work past that and I and, and my child has made a decision on his or her own self about their own life, like you said exactly, is I can do that same thing that hopefully I was doing with my spouse, mm-hmm. which is respect and say, okay, so my my son or daughter has made a decision that I don't necessarily agree with, but hopefully through my marriage, I've seen all the good that that faith can do for my son or daughter, all the good values and morals that they can teach them. And so I need to be supportive of that. That's powerful. Because that that's what's going to make my son or daughter a good person in the end. And, you know, hopefully I think, again, most religious faiths teach that we need to respect and love people that mm-hmm. don't agree with us or don't believe the same thing. Hopefully I can apply that to my own children. Well, and it could even be – I mean religion, there's always more behind it. But if my daughter wants to dance but I want her to play volleyball, right. my wife wants her to dance, she ends up dancing, mm-hmm. I could go celebrate it still. Right. I can go enjoy it. Yeah. You know. And I can, again, learn more about it. Yeah. 
right? Exactly. Because because I want to try to avoid that dynamic of okay, my spouse and my child are going off doing their own mm-hmm. religious thing, and I'm kind of off by myself. Is it good? Not that I have to join that faith or, or believe in it, but I can learn more about it. I can integrate it so that I can be a part of their conversations, part of their routines when they're doing church activities. I can come back and ask them questions. Yeah. I can just be involved, be just supportive. Like you said. Well, and also, I mean, yeah, ask my kids. So how did how did your trek go? How did right. your activity go? Yeah. Just like I would hopefully do as a parent, showing interest in anything my yeah. kids like. Isn't that funny? Because religion is so divisive, but in the end, too, we're a lot of times we're all saying the exact same thing. Right. We just are saying it differently, which is right. why if you shored up the principles, you could talk right. the same language. Yeah. Again, if you take away the, the labels, most religious affiliations essentially believe in the same thing. Yeah. It's the details that we differ exactly. on. Exactly. And that's, you know, led to hundreds of years of bloodshed and war and <laughs> just minor all, issues all, all those things yeah but you know if i can get past those details yeah. that i i really care about <laughs> but get to those core values it's 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 all there well especially if you both revere religion if you're not careful you'll you you could push the next generation generation away because you couldn't handle right. it which is a whole other topic that, that is. is happening in droves that's yeah. one thing we know about the young adult population is they're leaving religious faiths by the millions. They're just – they just – is it – we had a, an expert talk about it, about just – it's some of it's the duplicity, yeah. the hypocrisy. Yeah. It, it Religion doesn't jive well with our current individualism right. um, that most young adults have kind of taken hold of. Yeah. This, this whole judge not other people – Moral relativism um, doesn't 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 like I said doesn't connect well doesn't with a lot of religious faiths, and they're just so busy. Yeah. And so wait a minute. So I'm I'm trying to get my college degree. I'm trying to work. I'm trying to work out. I'm yeah. trying to find people. Date. I'm trying to yeah. have fun. I'm yeah. trying to travel the world. And you want me to go to church every week? Come on, mom. Come on. But when they get married yeah. and start having kids, do they tend to reach back? That's what we don't know yet. Yeah, because, I guess because that, the that millennial generation yeah. is is just barely starting to get married and have kids of their own, mm. and so it'll be interesting to see if we do get a little bit of rebound back to religious faith. But r- right now, all we're kind of seeing is we don't know. Yeah. We don't know. Well, uh, we appreciate you, Brian. Uh, Doctor Brian Willoughby dot com. It's a long name. Doctor Brian Willoughby W I L L O U G H B Y dot com. Go to his website. You can get all of his latest and greatest thinking. He's, he's the bomb. Thank you. He's the uh, bomb de Lyon. We appreciate you, and we'll take a break. Come back, visit our good brethren at BYU Sports Nation, find out what's coming on on their show, and can BYU handle St. Mary's? We'll find out. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, it's time to uh, travel to Vegas and visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up on their show today. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, Matthew. Viva. Viva Las Vegas. How are you doing? Oh, you know, we we survived the weekend. BYU won on Saturday. The men's team, the women's team took care of business on Friday. So it's semifinal Monday for both teams. St. Mary's again. (laughs) Is it? Are they both playing St. Mary's? Yes. Yep. Holy cow. When is that? When? When Uh, when do they play? Roughly, what, four? Sorry, we're on the West Coast, so I'm trying to do time out there. Yeah. Five Eastern for the women. Oh, my gosh. Okay. And then about 11 Eastern for the men. Oh, you guys. It's all happening. 
It's, it's happening. It's happening today. I, I just said to Spencer in the bathroom, I go, before the season, we, you know, you know, Spencer's getting waxed and everything. Yeah, right, right. He's got to get, yeah, I, tan. I said, BYU, we talked before the season about uh, semifinal Monday. That's the most important date on the schedule in the mm. whole season, right? Yeah, here, here we, we are. Today, staring at the Orleans score behind us, uh, this, is, this is the biggest game of the season for BYU. Can they get to... The title game in both the men and the women. What, what's your verdict, gentlemen? I think Holy the women can. Cow. I think I think the men would have the the men beating St. Mary's today wouldn't get the national splash that beating Gonzaga did. Yeah, it would actually be a bigger win. Because would it really? The matchup is tougher. Yeah, they the lost. St. Mary's is worse than Gonzaga in college basketball because. Everything happens in tournament fashion in one game. You know, it's one game yeah. or you're done. Um, matchups are everything. It's not a seven-game playoff series, right? Right. Like the NBA. You got your shot. You got, But the thing is, for BYU, it's a horrible matchup. It just, St. Mary's plays basketball like the honor code. <laughs> okay. Patient, conservative. Uh, takes its time, you know. It's, Slow and yeah. steady. Slow and steady. And BYU is young, anxious, aggressive, impatient. BYU plays a different brand of basketball. Yeah. Oh, boy. Okay? And St. Mary slows you down. They make you defend. They don't turn it over. They take good shots. They're annoyingly efficient. I hate it so much. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> it's kind of a... a fantastic basketball team. Uh. Like, Really good. They could be in the Sweet 16. It's just going to be a slow, steady drip. They poisoned BYU with efficiency in the first two games. In Moraga, BYU was kind of in that, never really in that game. At home, BYU trailed by 25. Unbelievable. I can't remember the last time BYU trailed by at home by 25. So St. Mary's and BYU tonight, we're going to ask Steve Cleveland, what in the heck BYU can do? To beat St. Mary's. Yeah. I'm flabbergasted by this matchup. Like, if you said, okay, BYU's playing Duke, I would say, well, Duke athletically will take BYU down. Athletically, BYU's better than St. Mary's. But St. Mary's is way more disciplined, patient, mm. and execution-based than most teams in the country, not just BYU, most teams. Yet, Dave Rose has never lost three games in a season to the same team. To the same team. Is mm. tonight the night... That that all changes. That all changes. Or does BYU make uh, some changes to beat St. Mary's? I'm intrigued by this tonight. How much of the desperation factor is in play for BYU? Or the, hey, we, we're not expected to win. We, we're given a 20% chance to beat St. Mary's tonight. Which like is 20 times more than Gonzaga. Let's just go out and have have a good time. Let's just do what we, have what we can. Mm. Boy. And and then but you're going to have two. You're going to watch two today. How, what do you suggest? What do you think the women? You think the women will handle it? Uh, this is a toss-up game for the women because, uh, I mean, they obviously split in the regular season, but Cassie Broadhead, the West Coast Conference Player of the Year, is not 100%. She wasn't 100% on Friday. She had one of the more gutty performances in the history of BYU women's basketball, playing through sickness and hitting a game-tying three-pointer uh, to put it into overtime with nine seconds to play. But I, if she were 100%, I'd feel a lot better. But I, yeah. I, don't, know, I don't know what she's going to be able to do today because St. Mary's is a really physical team, and uh, they'll go after Cassie. They'll, they'll go after her. They like to 
to bang around bodies in the paint and and really hold BYU uh, um, inside physically. Yeah, it's and it's it's a frustrating matchup. Boy, and so you guys aren't even you know tonight you're swamped. Then I guess you'll be able to sleep in, maybe hit the golf course tomorrow. Nope, we got a show. Okay. You're still doing your shows and, even tomorrow. It could be the women's title game. Yeah. And then the men's title game. So we'll, oh, yeah. that'd be fantastic. Let's hope the BYU's playing for two title games tomorrow. Wouldn't that that'd, be great? That'd be great. Holy Unlikely, cow. but let's hope for it. Well, yeah. But, yeah, a guy can dream. Yeah. Hey, I wanted, to, I wanted to ask you guys, I don't know if you heard about the Saudi prince or the Saudi king. He took 550, no, 506 tons of cargo on his trip. His his luggage actually. I did I did hear this. Yeah. So how much? I want to know how much your luggage weighs. Is it is I, it a couple tons? Is it fifty tons? Five hundred tons? That, uh, we drove down, so we didn't have to weigh it. Oh yeah. yeah. No, so I, I yeah I don't I I'm not like super conservative when I pack for this trip because it's a week and we drive down. Yeah. So it's like yeah, just throw yeah. it, just throw it in. Did I you know. did you guys take a limo? He took two limousines. How many limos took, did you guys take? We took a third of a limo, so a regular sized car. Did you really? Did you take a? Um, that was sorry. That was my. Uh, alarm I'm guessing going my out. my luggage combined weighs weighs yeah. about ninety pounds, Matt. Are you serious? Ninety's a lot. It's a I lot. Four suits. It's like three curling irons. The suits alone are like ten pounds. That's right. Stop wearing those ankle weights. <laughs> yeah, you brought your gym set. Your your your. You're not going to uh, jump any higher. You're getting too old. I brought like guys. seven pairs of shoes too. Oh wow. You don't Seven's travel Seven's light. Yeah. Well, guys, uh, we wish you the best of luck and the Cougars' luck today. So knock them dead and wow, they do their own. Uh, they do their own noise. That's incredible. This surprises you? This that, surprises you? No, that, no, no, no. I thought he'd pull out a saxophone or something. But no, no, there we go. There we go. Have a great show, guys. Using out of the Mandalay Bay too much. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Been partying. In the uh, shops at Mandalay Bay. Have a good show, guys. Knock them dead. Good luck to you. Boy, that's a long day, too. They don't get done till the wee hours of the morning. They'll be up, folks, in about five minutes. Five minutes. BYU Sports Nation will be uh, teaching all of us, setting us all up for the big day. Um, what were they calling it? St. Mary's Palooza. St. Mary's again. It's got a nice ring to it. Hey, did you hear about Tom Say- Tom Hanks of the show uh, of the the movie, the famous movie star actor, latest in Sully, latest I, in? Have you heard of Tom Hanks? No, he's a yeah, yeah a, Joe versus the volcano, Forrest Gump. These are some of his movies. Wait, is that the guy from Bosom Buddies? Yeah. See, now that I remember, yeah, he's been doing a lot of movies. Um, he apparently bought the White House press corps, uh, you know, a coffee maker. Oscar-winning actor sent a fancy Paschini espresso machine and a bunch of espresso pods along with a typewritten note which arrived on Thursday to the White House press corps, Hanks wrote, keep up the good fight for truth, justice, and the American way, especially the truth part. Are you choking? Are you no, making, was, you're making was espresso? The, that you're was aerating the sound. an espresso. That was the clip that we pulled. Oh, that was from the actual – yeah, that's yeah. great. The story apparently uh, he just is thanking uh, – he's thanking people. The story of Hanks and his efforts to keep the press corps alert da- alert dates back to George Washington – or sorry, George Bush presidency. In 04, the Washington Post uh, ran a column 
about uh, how Hanks had toured the briefing room. And um, anyway, there was a glitch. Let's look. There was a coffee machine issue. Um, and he said, I hope with this machine we'll make a 24-hour cycle of news a bit more pleasant. Add water, insert a pod, press the button, and report. All good things, Tom Hanks. So it started back then. So it's not necessarily about President Trump and some of the issues he's having with the White House pool, but it all started back then. The the, the machines are not cheap. Back then, in 04, he paid $1,000 for the machine. So this current one, you know, it could be wow. a lot of money. That's like a lunch break on one of his films. Yeah. It's how much he made during his lunch break. Well, but he, he gets a lunch break with nice, you know, he can get a caffeinated beverage because he's got a food cart. Yeah. Hey, our hero story of the day is an anonymous donor pays off meal debts for students in honor of a, the, a late lunch lady. Listen to this. To honor a popular lunch lady, an anonymous donor in Port Clinton, Ohio, paid off the lunch debts of 158 students. In February, a person contacted the school district and said they would like to cover every lunch balance on the books. More than $500 for students from kindergarten to 12th grade to celebrate their favorite cafeteria worker, Ruth Vogt, who died in January. Vogt uh, retired in 1998 after working for 20 years at Port Clinton High School. Vogt's daughter, elementary school teacher Martha Vogt Snyder, told the Port Clinton News Herald uh, her mother used to dig into her pockets for spare change to help kids who didn't have enough money to pay for their lunch. She's a very kind and generous soul, Snyder said. Vogt's family doesn't even know the identity of the anonymous donor, but Snyder wants this person to know the plan uh, shows they really knew her mother well. And vote is smiling down from heaven. So congratulations to this anonymous donor. Thank you for being the hero of the day on the Matt Townsend Show. And all it takes, folks, that's what we want to see out there. We tell these stories so you can see the good in the world. And if we can see the good in the world, then for heaven's sakes, we can be the good in the world. That's why we do the show. We'll be back again tomorrow to give you more ideas, more information to help you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. Until then, you can find us on iTunes, on Stitcher. You can uh, find us on TuneIn. You can go to byuradio.org. We're everywhere, folks. Look us up. Help us uh, Help us become better ourselves. Give us some feedback. We'll take uh, – that's it. That's the show. We're done. Until tomorrow, make it a great one. Let's take care of each other. We'll talk again tomorrow.